This is CNN Breaking News. Good morning, everyone. It's Tuesday, August 29th. I'm Phil Mattingly. Sarah Seidner is standing by in Florida, and that's where we want to start this morning with breaking news. Idalia is now a Category 1 hurricane. It now has a maximum sustained winds of 75 miles per hour with stronger gusts, and it is expected to intensify to a potentially Category 3 hurricane before making landfall in Florida tomorrow, where millions are already under hurricane and storm surge warnings. Right now, Western Cuba is feeling the brunt of the storm. Then, the track puts Idalia coming on shore well north of Tampa in Florida's Big Bend. But, and this is a very important reminder, a small shift in the track could put that population center more at risk. Sarah arrived just a few hours ago in Clearwater, Florida. And Sarah, some parts of Florida will start seeing the and feeling the impact soon. What are you seeing on the ground right now? Look, like every other hurricane, it is calm before the storm, but this is when people are being told to evacuate in 10 counties and preparations are underway as Adalia, who started out as a tropical storm and is now a hurricane, it is expected to grow and grow and grow to a major hurricane, a category three hurricane right now. Listen to what people are doing as they try to get out of the way of a high storm surge and high winds. Can cause fear and a lot of anxiety. So, yeah, we're concerned. There's been plenty of times when I've overprepared and then griped about it afterward because all the work I did I had to undo. But it's it's better than the alternative of not being prepared if it does turn this way and things go sideways. So you heard the anxiety is high there. We've talked to people early this morning at 5 a.m. who are also preparing to leave. They came to visit uh, Clearwater, where we are, and now they realize that this could be a very dangerous and serious storm. With us now, Derek Van Dam. I get to hang out with him in person. Hurricanes do sometimes <laughs> bring people together. Uh, we are standing on the what beautiful sandy beaches here yeah. of Clearwater, but this is potentially a very powerful storm. Without a doubt, and this area is so susceptible pu purely because of what you're looking at, just how shallow the nature is of this topography here. Everything, you could literally walk out on this shoreline and still be knee height in water for several hundred yards away from where the water starts. So it's just the topography here. It's so flat, it's so vulnerable. And we talk about storm surge, that is uh, the number one related fatality uh, disaster for a hurricane. You know, it's not the winds, it is the water and we continue to go back on that. We harp on that product so much because of its dangers. We saw that with Hurricane Ian and uh, what it's capable here across the eastern Gulf of Mexico as well. You have been tracking this. Is there any sense of exactly the timing of when we'll start seeing some of the real effects of this? It's always very interesting. Yeah. It's very humid. It feels like a regular summer day right. here in Florida. Right. And but we know we're watching it inch closer and closer and closer. Yeah, you said it just well uh, earlier because this is like the last few hours that people have to prepare their property uh, and to evacuate in those mandatory evacuation zones as well. So just before uh, sunrise, we'll have the first bands kind of approach the southern Florida peninsula. Then they'll slowly creep up and then they'll reach us here in Clearwater uh, midday today. And then that's when we start to see those intermittent tropical storm force winds. When we start seeing the hurricane force winds, it'll be overnight and certainly into the day on Wednesday. That's when we expect the most power from the storm to really ramp up. And uh, 
Wow, if you're on the east side of that uh, center of this particular hurricane, that is where we're going to watch out. We call that the dirty side. That's the, that's the area that has the potential for tornadic activity, that type of thing. And that's another thing a lot of people are very concerned about, tornadic activity. In fact, the last time when Hurricane Ian came to this uh, side of Florida, People first were alerted it was coming. There was a tornado that showed up. So right. there are a lot of things that can happen that are unpredictable in these storms because they do create their own weather, don't they? 100%. And uh, you got to look out for those little wobbles. We talk about that so much, but that is what is so crucial because the, the way that the storm is literally approaching the Florida Peninsula, it's going to run parallel. So if we get an, an eastward jog or mm. a westward jog, that puts major population densities at play. Uh, Tampa Bay, for instance. Clearwater, where we are located. If it goes a little further west, Apalachicola, Panama City. So it's a game of miles. We say that often, but you need to pay attention to the forecast track. Right now, we've got a big bend landfalling hurricane, Cedar Key, kind of right at that target point. But anywhere, this is going to be a large storm as it continues to expand, intensify. And I'll tell you what, this is what's so phenomenal to us. Water temperatures are running two, three degrees Fahrenheit above average. So that is like jet fuel for hurricanes. That means this storm is going to deepen, it's going to strengthen, and we're gonna see its wind field grow. So we'll see impacts from this well away from the center of the storm. You will feel that wind, but it is the storm surge. It is the flooding yep. that is the most dangerous and the most deadly. We will be watching it. I will be paying attention to everything that you're saying okay. as you track this storm. We're gonna send it back to you, Phil. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Derek. We are going to be keeping a very close eye on this throughout the course of the next several hours, throughout the course of the next several days. Just to reiterate, uh, Idalia has now strengthened to a hurricane, a Category 1 hurricane, about 85 miles north of the western part of Cuba. We will be watching that throughout the morning, but we are also watching this morning some major developments in two legal cases for former President Trump. The trial for the former president's federal election interference case now has a date set to begin March 4th, 2024. The judge, Tony Chutkin, brushing off Trump's request for a two-year delay and instead choosing the day before the Super Tuesday Republican primaries, the biggest voting day in that primary race. Meanwhile, Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, left court in Georgia yesterday without a ruling on his effort to move his state case to federal court. The judge says he will rule as quickly as possible. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now. And Evan, I want to start with what you were watching in Washington yesterday, the federal case and now having a day, Judge Tanya Chutkin did not seem to have a lot of patience for delays in the date itself. How's it going to work when Trump or his legal team try and appeal that date or shift that March 4th date? Yeah, Phil, look, I think she is not very patient at all with the attempt to try to delay this. She, right off the bat, uh, told the, the, the defense that she uh, didn't believe they were going to get two years. She didn't think they needed two years. She said that they had plenty of time to be able to, to, to prepare. Uh, they were complaining about uh, millions of pages of, of documents that were turned over by the government that they say they need to be able to prepare. Uh, John Lauro certainly said that what the proposal from the government was ridiculous and what the government was trying to do was a show trial, not a fair trial. In the end, uh, she asked him to turn the temperature down, and then she chose March 4th. And what we expect is that, uh, you know, they might try, the former president might try to delay this in some way, uh, perhaps by, by trying to ask her to appeal uh, the, the trial date, but it's not likely to work, at least certainly not by him very much time, because uh, as she said, this is what she said from the bench, she said, uh, setting a trial date does not depend and should not depend on the defense personal or professional obligations. That's a reference to the fact that the former president is running for office and he's going to spend a lot of time in the courtroom instead of being able to be on the campaign trail during that time. 
Yeah, we, we showed just the calendar of March uh, where really critical primaries are happening, and that's already packed. Yeah. Uh, and you look at the next five months, it's definitely packed. I do want to ask you, though, Evan, uh, about the Georgia election interference case. Mark Meadows showing up to testify. There's, to some degree, almost a collective gasp. You haven't heard from him really since January right. 6th, with the exception of his book. The decision to put him on the stand, uh, a risk, I think, to some degree, unexpected, but a gamble that could pay off to some degree? Right. It is a gamble that could pay off. Certainly the judge from the bench yesterday, uh, Phil, said that this is a pretty low bar, actually, to remove this case. And he asked some very pointed questions himself uh, of, of uh, George Meadows's, uh, I'm sorry, of Mark Meadows's lawyer, George Terwilliger. Uh, about the limits of what he was arguing, which is that what Mark Meadows was doing, going down to Georgia, spending time pressuring state officials, all of that was part of his officials, uh, official duties as chief of staff. Uh, in the end, though, this is a gamble because in the end, what, what, what Mark Meadows did was answer questions that he has not had to answer at all, certainly not in the Georgia case where he's charged, and could be used against him. For instance, he denied that he wrote a memo that uh, was designed to try to uh, delay certification of the January 6th, uh, on January 6th of the election results. That's something that prosecutors in the other federal case could end up using against uh, him and other people inside the White House, Phil. Yeah, it was a fascinating development, hours of testimony. Evan, keeping an eye on all of it, thanks so much. Sure. Well, corrupt, old, how Americans really feel about the front runners in the 2024 race? That new polling coming up next. What are you From watching, Sarah? That's somebody. And we are here in Florida. We are in Clearwater as we await this storm. There are dozens of evacuations, many, many school districts that have closed down. And we're going to check in with Cuba, who has felt the effects of this storm. No, that is not yet the rain from the storm. That's a sprinkler. But we will give you an update on where the storm is ahead. Is that too soon, too far away? What do you think? I think it's a realistic date, Jake, given that it's a one defendant case. Today, I think what the judge did was twofold. One, um, she gave them another six months to get ready for trial in a single defendant case. And two, she made it quite clear to the Trump legal team that the public relations games that they and their client play are not going to impact the decisions that she makes in the courtroom. That was Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie talking to Ron Jake Tapper, reacting to the trial date being set in Trump's federal election interference trial. The judge, Tanya Chutkins, set the trial date for March 4th, and that's a day before the Super Tuesday primaries. Analysis from CNN's own Stephen Collinson put it this way. The timing increases the chances that before going to the polls in November 2024, Americans will have a full understanding of the implications of at least one of the trials looking into Trump's attempt to destroy America's tradition of transferring power from one president to the next. In that sense, a trial that begins in March would have a civic purpose and could be vital to U.S. democracy. Joining me now, senior reporter for The Root, Jessica Washington, political video reporter for The Washington Post, Joyce Coe, and former prosecutor for The New York's District Attorney's Office, Rebecca Royfe. Uh, Rebecca, I want to start on the timing, because Collinson makes a, a really interesting point about the necessity of people knowing about this 
But there's a dynamic here of the legal intertwining with the political. It's a total mess for everybody, I think. But something the, the judge, Tanya Chutkin, said yesterday that really stood out to me, I, I want to pull it up for a second, where she said, setting a trial date does not depend and should not depend on the defendant's personal or professional obligations. She basically said, if you're a professional athlete and you were in season, I don't care. That's, that has nothing to do with this. So how does this date kind of track with what you're used to in terms of how a judge would decide something like this? Yeah, Phil, I mean, she really made an effort to, and she has consistently made an effort to suggest that she is not treating him any differently than any other defendant. It is, of course, a unique case, and so extremely hard to do that. And I think it's true that this is a pretty quick trial for, you know, yes, there's only one defendant, as Chris Christie said, but it is also a pretty complicated case with a lot of documents. And, you know, it's it's a pretty quick trial date. It's not unreasonable, but, you know, she is she is taking into account broader social interest in having an effective and efficient resolution of this case, which is legitimate. You, know, you heard a very strenuous argument from Trump's uh, lawyer or legal team about the, need, the necessity of preparation. And you make the point. There's, there are millions of documents here, uh, hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. Now, contrast that with what we heard from one of Trump's attorneys over the weekend, Alina Habba. Take a listen. What is he going to have to be prepped for? The truth? You don't have to prep much when you've done nothing wrong. So that I'm not concerned with. So maybe a little misalignment of messaging to some degree. But I, I do think that underscores there are PR lawyers here and there are also the legal team lawyers. The idea of needing a lot of time to prep. You think that that's not necessarily off base? I don't think it's off base. I think it's a little disingenuous given the fact that they were asking for this, you know, 2026 trial date if they had been willing to compromise and the judge pushed them. She said, you know, can you pick a more realistic date? And they were like, they kept they kept with that after the election date. And that made it seem as if preparation was really a ruse, that what they really want to do is push this off past the election, a point at which in their minds, he wins the election. He either pardons himself or he appoints an attorney general who just dismisses and makes these cases go away. Yeah, it's the unspoken subtext in all this that everybody kind of whispers about that, at least in the federal cases, for sure, getting elected and then the ability to pardon himself or kill any case is a critical component, which is a weird reason to run for president. And yet here we are. The calendar, though, is what fascinates me. And obviously the Trump team immediately jumped on the This is the day before Super Tuesday. This is election interference. Look, man, you were indicted four times in the middle of a campaign. It was going to be problematic. But I want to pull up the March calendar, Joyce, because people are pointing to Super Tuesday. I get that. That's the day after. But uh, eight days later is the Georgia prim er, primary, which, by the way, Georgia is not a great state for the former president right now, beyond just the Fulton County indictment. A week after that is a bunch of winner-take-all primaries, including Florida, where his top competitor, despite being up by 20 or 30 points, is the governor of Florida, who just crushed his opponent in his reelection campaign. When you look at this calendar, are there political problems here? Yes, because then several weeks after that, he'll be in New York for the New York hush money right. payment case. And then down the line at the end of May in Florida, he's scheduled to appear in the trial there. And then we don't know, you know when the trial date officially will be set in this Georgia case. So this is going to be happening at a time when things are really ramping up on the presidential campaign trail. Um, you know, things are it already seems like all eyes are on the trail right now with all of this activity over Trump's indictments, um, even more so than they would be, you know, in any other election year. But by March, I mean, candidates are out there. They're talking to voters. They're really you know, things are really ramping up energetically on the trail. And this is going to be coming at a time. I mean, Super Tuesday, if he's 
going into a federal courthouse the day before more than a dozen states throughout the country are voting, optically that will be extremely stark compared to other candidates on the, tri on the trail, um, you know, going to their rallies and their events and giving stump speeches. So I think it'll be, you know, optically stark. And then, of course, the political ramifications of that to come. And I think as much as I think your point about optics is a 100 percent accurate. And B, I understand when people are like, stop talking about optics. It's very disingenuous. No, no, no. This matters here because the optics of him showing up for arraignments, showing up for indictments has had a boost in his fundraising, has had a boost in his poll numbers, has consolidated his Republican support. And so if you're another Republican campaign and you're looking at this calendar, my natural instinct is to say he's off the trail for weeks. That's a huge net positive. But is it? I think what we saw in the beginning with the indictments was a boost for Trump among Republicans. But what we've seen more recently, he did not get a boost after this latest, this fourth indictment. And the American public generally is concerned about this. I think the latest ABC Ipsos poll, about 50 percent of Americans said he should suspend his campaign because of these indictments. So and I think about 20 percent of Republicans. So I do think the concern for Trump is maybe he was seeing a boost and he certainly seems to think that he's getting a boost from these indictments, from these trials. And we've seen it in the fundraising numbers. Right. But when Americans see him in a courthouse right before Super Tuesday, right before they're about to pull that lever to vote, I do think there are some people who are going to push pause. As an impact. Before we go, Rebecca, what are people going to see? If the, court da if the date stands, and it seems like it's going to, at least at this point, that week, the weeks that follow, what are people going to be seeing or hearing about in terms of this trial? So it's a complicated trial, it tells us, but it tells a simple story. And it tells a simple story about his efforts to interfere with this election. Now, his defense is going to push hard on this fact that he was simply, or their argument that he was simply trying to contest what he thought was a rigged election. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence stacked up there that he knew this election was stolen and he continued to push and pushed in ways that were not legitimate. It's one thing to bring a case in court. It's another thing to arrange for fake electors. So I think that evidence will start to play out in much the way it did in the January 6th um, hearings, but at a different point in time, as we were just talking about, yeah. and in a different forum. And the forum is extremely important because we're so used to the PR back and forth, the statements, the bombastic, uh, you know, yelling at one another. This is in a court of law. There are legal precedents and requirements here. That is a different venue. Um, all right, Jessica, Joyce, Rebecca, thank you guys very much. We'll take you back out live to Clearwater, Florida, where the city and surrounding communities are bracing for Hurricane Idalia. We're going to speak to someone who is on board a Hurricane Hunter plane in just moments. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Sunday, it was like, it's coming. And now it's like, get out. It's mandatory. I don't know if I want to leave or not, though. I, I don't know where to go. You were just listening to a Hernando County, Florida resident in the path of what's expected to be a major hurricane. Sarah Seidner is standing by just south of there in Clearwater, Florida. Overnight, Idalia strengthened into a Category 1 hurricane. Sarah will be speaking to a storm chaser in just a few moments who's traveled to Florida to follow the storm. But here's what we know right now. Millions in Florida are under hurricane warnings. Rainfall totals could get up to 12 inches in some areas. A life-threatening storm surge warning is in place for the Big Bend area of Florida. 
Evacuations have been ordered in at least 10 counties in the region, and 32 school districts, multiple colleges also closed, including Florida A&M, Florida State University, and the University of Florida in Gainesville. Officials warn of punishing winds and flash flooding. Meteorologist Derek Van Dam is with us now. Derek, what's the latest? What are we seeing as these updates start to come in? Yeah, so what people need to know is that it strengthened to a hurricane officially at the 5 a.m. update this morning. One interesting thing to note as well is that it is on its forward move. Uh, we are seeing that northerly progression at about 14 miles per hour. So that means it is picking up speed and it will continue to do so before its landfall. Now look, it's got a lot of open water to traverse first and that water is extremely warm. So that will allow for this, what we call rapid intensification, a strengthening of the storm. We've seen this story play out time and time again, Hurricane Ian uh, last year, we remember that. Uh, here's the latest radar and you can see how the western slopes of Cuba are getting clobbered right now with heavy rain bands, Havana included in that category one hurricane now moving into the open waters of the southern Gulf of Mexico. And we'll start to see those rain bands impact uh, places like Fort Myers, Naples, eventually into Tampa as well. Here's a look at the storm surge flooding, and we've got the red highlighted there, 8 to 12 feet, that's Cedar Key. And that's incredible because a lot of people use a benchmark storm of Hermine, which was a Category 1 back in 2016. You may have covered it. That brought 6 feet of storm surge, and that was only a Category 1. This could be wow. a Category 3. For Cedar Key, that means total inundation of that particular uh, key right off of the coast. And this is why authorities are telling people you have to evacuate now. This storm is going to be powerful. You may not feel it right now. It feels like a regular right. summer day, yeah. but you will start seeing these storm surges and you will start seeing this wind and potentially tornadic activity yeah. as well. Uh, speaking of someone who has gone through this, we now have Patrick Ottman. He is in Havana uh, where this storm has slammed into. Patrick, what is the situation there? Yeah, literally. Uh, it was clear skies this morning. I hadn't felt a drop of rain. And then one of these bands came through as it did and knocked over our equipment, knocked us off the air, uh, absolutely soaked me. And uh, we are on the outer edges of this. The storm passed to the west of Cuba. I don't believe it actually ever made landfall as a tropical storm. All the same, though, Cuban officials evacuated about 8,000 people from low-lying areas. We saw some heavy flooding in these areas. And as I... You know, uh, was just telling you, I thought we weren't going to get uh, a, a raindrop on us all morning. It looked absolutely uh, clear. And then just out of nowhere, this band came in, uh, absolutely soaked us. It was knocking over our tripods. We had to kind of come in and take a little bit of shelter. And this storm came uh, by Cuba to the west of Cuba as a tropical storm. As it gets into the Gulf, it's going to get in this historically warm waters and just continue to pick up force. So it's something that people really need to be careful about. Uh, I, again, I just thought that we weren't going to get anything all day and uh, a band uh, of rain and wind came through and we're on the outskirts of this storm and, and just absolutely slammed into us and uh, it was kind of a, a wall of rain behind us for a little bit passing now. But I'm sure throughout the day we'll continue to get this as the storm goes north towards Florida and continues to pick up steam. Patrick Ottman, we are glad you are okay. You give a perfect example as to what can happen and how quickly it can happen, which is why they want people to prepare and to evacuate in now 10 counties here in Florida, because that kind of activity is going to get more intense as the storm intensifies. 
Thank you so much, Patrick Oppmann, there for us in Havana, Cuba. Uh, we are going to eventually hear from a, a storm hunter who has been chasing this storm and trying to see just what it is like up close and personal as it barrels towards the state. We will have much more with our Derek Van Dam, who is also tracking the storm here with all of his electronics and his smarts. Uh, we are gonna now toss it back to Phil, who's got an incredible way to look at how storm surge, how strong this storm surge might just be. Yeah, Sarah, we're gonna get back to, to you and Derek and the team in a moment on the ground, but for demonstration purposes, because I think this is really important as people try and visualize what's actually or what could be coming their way in the coming hours and days. More than 5 million people right now are under storm surge warnings across southern and eastern Florida. Now, it could be life-threatening. The highest storm surge is expected to happen in the Big Bend area of Florida. You're looking at it right here in red. Forecasters say water levels could reach up to 12 feet. So what does that actually mean? Think about this perspective because it kind of seems a little bit amorphous to some degree. This is a 12-foot ladder. I'm 5 foot 11 on a good day. That's 12 feet. And if you don't believe me, we actually have a sign at the top that says 12 feet. We measured this out. The water could tower above the average person, could reach the top of a bedroom or a bathroom. People in at-risk areas, they've been told to evacuate for a reason. That is not made up. That is 12 feet. That's the threat. That's why you're getting the warnings from federal, state, and local officials. Sarah and Derek? Phil, that was a really good way to really show people just how dangerous this can be. And as Derek has mentioned over and over and over again, because it is the absolute truth, it is the storm surge. It is the flooding that takes lives. That is the most dangerous thing in any hurricane that we have seen come through this state. Well, picture this, Sarah and Phil, and a great explanation there, Phil. But um, a cubic yard of water weighs 1,700 pounds. Now, Imagine several feet of that washing in at you all at once. There's no way you could stand up or any structure could survive that type of uh, an event. We saw that play out with Hurricane Ian. I mean, we, we saw the devastation that it brought to Fort Myers Beach. The surge, we always go back to it. It is the number one lethal, most lethal part of a hurricane. That is the most important thing. I've been talking to friends who are in Fort Myers, everybody obviously extremely concerned because that area hasn't even completely recovered yeah. from Hurricane yeah. Ian. And now you are seeing another storm, but this is how hurricane season is. Sometimes it's right. one after the other. And as this one intensifies, we will be watching and waiting. Evacuations again underway for 10 counties. 32 school districts now here in Florida have been closed down so that people can take their kids to safety. We will update you on the very latest on this storm and what people are doing to prepare for it and those who are evacuating as well. Phil. All right, Sarah and Derek, we will be going back. This is not hyperbole, folks. These are the warnings. We're demonstrating it because it's important. Right now, Idalia, a Category 1 hurricane in the latest update. We will keep you updated. But we're also keeping an eye across the globe, including could Vladimir Putin attend the funeral of his ally-turned-foe, Wagner chief Evgeny Prigozhin? We're going to take you live to Russia with what we're learning. And new overnight, we're seeing and hearing from detained American Paul Whelan for the first time in years as he is wrongfully detained inside a Russian prison. Stay with us. So brand new overnight, there is a heavy police presence in sealed off roads around a cemetery in St. Petersburg, Russia, amid speculation that Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin will be buried there. I wanna get right to CNN senior international correspondent, Matthew Chance, who is live at the cemetery. Uh, Matthew, when I heard where you were, and what you were reporting on, 
We have to talk to you. Take us inside what you're seeing, what's happening right now on the ground. Yeah, well, we're actually inside the Serafimovsky Cemetery, which is in St. Petersburg. It's one of the biggest cemeteries uh, in, the, in the Russian city. And, and you can see uh, behind me a sort of forested area with a whole load of you know, graves in it. You know, tens of thousands of people have been buried here over the years since it was founded in the early uh, 20th century. And it's here that we believe uh, that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the mercenary Wagner chief who was killed last week in that plane crash, will be laid to rest, will be buried. Um, it's not, it's not, hard, not easy, rather, to tell you exactly, because a cloak of secrecy, frankly, Phil, has been thrown all over this. The officials aren't telling us what's happening. Uh, there's no official announcement about when the funeral is going to be, but there are lots of indications that this is the place. And let's just have a look over here. Let me show you over here, because uh, uh, you know, un unusually, there's been security placed outside the gates. They've set up metal detectors. There are armed Ministry uh, of Interior um, uh, police that have been put outside checking people as they come through. There's nobody coming through uh, at the moment, but there's been some people coming through with carnations, red flowers, um, showing, showing uh, you know, being, being checked as much as possible. Again, you know, a cloak of secrecy over it. Uh, we don't know what the exact funeral arrangements are going to, going to be. We do know from this morning that the Kremlin has said that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, will not be attending uh, this ceremony. The Kremlin is saying uh, that that's a matter for the family. It's going to be a private affair. And so, again, it talks to this idea that the Kremlin, as much as, as possible, want this to be a low-key affair. They're not keen to talk up the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin. And that's because there are all sorts of suspicions, despite the fact the Kremlin has denied any involvement, calling it absolute lies. There are still lots of suspicions, despite those denials, that the killing of Yevgeny Prigozhin, his plane crash in which he died along with nine other people, could have had the involvement of the Russian state. There's no evidence of that yet. There's an investigation underway. But again, you, know, you speak to ordinary Russians and few people believe that investigation, which is an official investigation, is ever going to point the finger of blame uh, to state involvement if, that, if that's what it finds. So, you know, interesting situation. We'll see how this develops over the course of the next day or so. Fascinating developments. Please keep us posted. Matthew Chance, great reporting uh, for us out in Russia. Now, also overnight, rare video of American Paul Whelan from inside a Russian prison. Russian state-controlled news agency Russia Today shot and released the video showing Whelan in a prison uniform. Now, he's been detained since 2018. His brother David said this was the first time he's seen what Paul really looks like since June 2020. Paul Whelan briefly spoke to a reporter. Take a listen. So you understand when I say that I can't do an interview, which means I can't answer any questions. Now, earlier this month, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke to Whelan, and the Biden administration continues to reiterate to Russia their proposal for Whelan's release. I want to toss back now to Sarah Seidner, who is on the ground for us in Florida as the state prepares, the Gulf Coast prepares for what is now a Category 1 hurricane. Sarah, what are you seeing on the ground there? It is, again, very calm now. This is the time when people need to get out. There are now uh, more counties, more than 10 counties that are being evacuated uh, at this hour. 32 school districts closed down, and that is because they are very concerned about a high storm surge and that the winds will intensify. Now, we have someone who is in the midst of this in the sky. Lieutenant Chris Wood uh, is a hurricane hunter. He knows what things, these things look like up close and personal in the most difficult parts of this. Can you give us some sense? And I hope you can hear me. Thank you for joining us this morning, Lieutenant. 
Can you give us some sense of what it is you're seeing? I hear the rattling, the noise that you're in right now. It's very hard to hear you, and there's a reason for that. We are hearing those outer bands of the hurricane uh, as you go directly into this. Why is it so important uh, that you and your crew are there to try and track this, to try and see what we are dealing with? Lieutenant Chris Wood, it is very, very hard to hear you, but that is because you are in the belly of the beast. You are in this storm feeling those outer bands. Now, Derek Van Dam uh, is here. He's not only a meteorologist, he's been uh, yeah. in one of these enormous right. planes that go into this. Can you give us a sense of what, what that is like um, from your perspective as you, you fly into this massive storm? It is, it's, it's extremely chaotic, but it's more chaotic in the storms that are developing and strengthening. So what we're seeing with Adalia he's going through some of the greatest turbulence because that storm is now starting to get its act together. We flew in the Hurricane Hunter planes, which is a CJ-130, uh, the super aircraft. Uh, he's actually flying in a P-3 Orion, so a slightly smaller version of that, but still a turboprop. And uh, these planes have you know, different reasons why they're out there. He's probably sampling the uh, upper levels of the atmosphere to give us meteorologists better intel, better information, so we can forecast and pinpoint that exact track of where Adelia will travel. Now the Hurricane Hunters that I flew with with the CJ-130 aircraft, we fly right into the eye of the hurricane. It's called punching the eye wall. And it is an incredible moment to actually be inside of that circular mm. motion of the inside of that belly of the beast, like you said. It is incredible to see it and experience it. it but on the ground, the destruction can be enormous. Yeah. It is an extremely dangerous thing uh, for folks on the ground. And frankly, for, for you punching through the eye wall, you, yeah. you, you know, that turbulence has to be really, 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 really incredible. You have to have a good stomach to deal 100%. with that sort of thing. And, and you've got um, safety belts to, to hold yourself down. But I can't understand the importance of the work that they are doing yeah. because every little bit of detail over the open ocean becomes available to the meteorologist so we are able to better pinpoint the forecast so we need the data that they are currently collecting. And right now, Lieutenant Chris Wood is collecting that data. They cannot get it any other way as accurately as these hurricane hunters. I want to now bring in Ashley Giovanetti. She is with Pinellas County, the uh, PIO there, and she is going to give us some information. I, I want to thank you this morning for coming on. I know this is a time when everyone is preparing and you're trying to help the citizens of this county get to safety. Can you give us some sense of what it is and how people are preparing and what they need to know in order to keep themselves and their families safe? Absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, residents should complete their preparations today and be in a safe place by this evening. You know, we have a mandatory evacuation for Zone A and all mobile home residents 
in effect for Pinellas County. And I know those evacuations are happening all over the west coast of Florida, and people really need to heed those evacuations. Um, we have special needs and pet shelters available for those who need them. You know, one of the main reasons uh, we've been told people don't evacuate is because they're due to uncertainty of what to do with their pets. Well, it's just like preparing your family member or preparing yourself. Make sure that your pet has enough food, has enough water. If you're going to uh, evacuate, go to a pet-friendly shelter or evacuate with a family or friend that's going to allow your pet to be there. There are hotels that are pet-friendly. There's a lot of options. And you don't have to travel all the way across the state or into another state. Um, we want you to evacuate tens of miles, not hundreds of miles. That's really good information, um, going tens of miles, not hundreds of miles. One of the things that people must pay attention to is sort of the tracking of the storm. Uh, but these storms do wobble. Um, so where is it that you are trying to tell people to go to? Because if people go to the north, they may get caught up if they wait too late uh, into that, that storm surge. Absolutely. Really, all they have to do is go to a non-evacuation zone. So the first and foremost, you know, need to know what zone you're in. Um, if you are in that zone A or you are a mobile home resident, evacuate to an area in Pinellas County even that is a non-evacuation zone. And again, for people that don't have any other way to evacuate, they don't have anywhere to go, um, there are shelters available. We opened up 10 shelters um, and those nine additional ones were opened up this morning. Where do they get that information? I, right now, everything is working. Uh, the storm is not here yet. Where should they go to gather the information they need to know where they are, where they can go if they have pets, for example? Um, and I know that some of the, the hotels in, in some of the other areas, they're hurricane rated as well, hopefully out of the evacuation zone. Well, definitely. And you, and you bring up a good point about visitors. We want to make sure that our visitors as well are looking up their evacuation zone. And they can do that easily at disaster.pinellas.gov. Again, that's disaster.pinellas.gov. And that's for our local residents and visitors here in Pinellas County. Emergency information is also available um, for us through Alert Pinellas, uh, the Ready Pinellas app, and again, disaster.pinellas.gov. We also have our uh, county information center open around the clock starting at 8 a.m. today. So even if there's some um, worried friends, folks that um, have questions, they can call this evening and they can call 727-464-4333. We also have um, the availability for residents who are deaf or hard of hearing can contact our county information center via online chat. And again, that's at disaster.panelist.gov. I think you made a really, really good point. Thank you for giving all that information. It's really important to people so they know exactly what they need to do. Those people who have children, those people who have pets, treat your pets like you would treat your kids. Figure out where to go, bring them with you. Do not stay in a dangerous place. Get everybody to safety. Thank you so much, Ashley Giovanetti uh, the Pinell of Pinellas County. We appreciate your time this morning and we want you to stay as safe as possible as you watch this storm and try to keep people out of danger. We are gonna toss it back to Phil now. All right, thanks, Sarah. Very important information. We're gonna be getting back to you, to Derek, to the entire team on the ground, but we also, coming up, wanna focus on newly released surveillance video uh, of that deadly shooting also in Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. What it's revealing about the police response that's coming up next. Stay with us.
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, in sports this morning, Novak Djokovic will reclaim the world number one ranking after a quick first round win. The 23-time Grand Slam winner knocked off his first round opponent in just one hour and 34 minutes. Moving on here in New York. Now, many of the women's singles players in this year's U.S. Open main draw share something very special in common, their mothers. Ten of those players now have kids, and two of them will even play each other in the first round today, all while finding a way to balance tennis with parenting young children. CNN's Carolyn Mano reports. I was just looking at the clock, actually. My, uh, my kids are napping right now, which is awesome. These days, Caroline Wozniacki is playing doubles off the court. After retiring three years ago and having two children, she's back in tennis's spotlight. After being a mom and being a role model for my kids and, uh, you know, for them to be able to see me play, I'm, I'm very excited about that. The former world number one is one of 10 women in this year's U.S. Open singles draw who are mothers, disproving the notion that women must choose between sport and starting a family. A mother is torn in a lot of different directions. You know, when she's competing at such a high level, it's got to be difficult. Fresh off a semifinal finish at Wimbledon, 28-year-old Elena Svitolina's game is seemingly stronger in her return from maternity leave. I think it's good that they're doing it because it's also showing some of these younger players like in their early 20s that, oh, you know, if I really, if I want to have kids, maybe I could have a child like a Svitolina and come back and actually have a successful career afterwards. Two-time Grand Slam champion Victoria Azarenka, who returned to the game after the birth of her son Leo, has been vocal about the fact that she wants the sport to stay in the foreground when it comes to progressive and inclusive attitudes towards working moms in the sport. And a change made by the Women's Tennis Association back in 2019 now allows women to freeze their player rankings for up to three years so they aren't penalized in tournament seating for taking pregnancy leave. While more than 20 active players on the WTA Tour are successfully balancing motherhood with being a pro athlete, the sport's most coveted prize, a Grand Slam singles title, remains elusive for women who have given birth. It's been well over a decade since Kim Clijsters won three such titles after the birth of her daughter Jada. I hope that I can inspire a lot of other women who, um, who are willing or hoping to do the same thing but maybe don't know the the way to, to start, it's a great, a great feeling to have knowing that you can, you can combine both and still do, you know, still play the sport that I love, but then also, you know, being a mother at the same time. This year's U.S. Open is full circle for Wozniacki, who lost to Kleisters in that 2009 U.S. Open final. Now she will try to make a run with her family in tow. It's important that my kids believe that they can do whatever they put their minds to. If they work hard enough, the sky's the limit. There's really nothing that they can't do. I could not love a piece more than that. So damn impressive. Our thanks to Carolyn Mano for that piece. Uh, I want to bring Sarah back in. Sarah, you're on the ground in Florida. We're watching calm before the storm right now, but a lot more to come and a lot of preparations underway. It is extremely beautiful. It is about to get extremely dangerous. Lots of evacuations underway. CNN This Morning continues right now. A major hurricane is barreling toward Florida's Gulf Coast. Florida's National Guard has been activated millions along the Gulf, now being told to prepare to evacuate as Idalia rapidly gains strength. 
Floridians should expect this storm will be a major Cat 3 plus hurricane. FEMA has deployed two incident management teams to Tallahassee. This is a big event here. Storm surge could be 12 feet. It is not going to bode well for the west coast of Hernando County. Execute those plans and reach out to the resources that we have available locally. January 6th, well, meet March the 4th. That is the day before Super Tuesday. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin denied Trump's long shot bid for a trial in April of 2026. She made it quite clear that the public relations games are not going to impact the decisions that she makes in the courtroom. The judge in DOJ is very much thinking about the election date. John Laurel stood up in court and gave a really strenuous and impassioned plea. That appeal's going nowhere. It's all talk, which is what he does. It's incoherent makes no sense. Mark Meadows took the stand under oath. It was a surprising move. I think it's so interesting to watch this continue to play out like some sort of Ponzi scheme of lies. The end of the day, Meadows had to testify because there was no one else. Well, good morning, everyone. It's Tuesday, August 29th. I'm Phil Mattingly. Sarah Seidner is standing by for us in Florida, and that's where we want to start with breaking news, very serious news. Idalia is now a Category 1 hurricane. It now has maximum sustained winds of 75 miles per hour with stronger wind gusts. And it is expected to intensify to a potentially Category 3 hurricane before making landfall in Florida tomorrow, where millions are already under hurricane and storm surge warnings. Now, right now, Western Cuba is feeling the brunt of the storm. Then the track puts Idalia coming on shore well north of Tampa in Florida's Big Bend. But, and this is a critical reminder, particularly in this moment, a small shift in the track could put that population center more at risk. Now, Sarah arrived just a few hours ago in Clearwater, Florida. And Sarah, some parts of Florida will start feeling the impact soon. What have you been seeing since you've been on the ground? We've been seeing people leaving because they have been warned this is going to get really nasty really quickly. We're talking about a major storm surge as well as high winds. There are now 14 counties uh, that have been told to evacuate. Those are mandatory evacuations for people. 32 school districts are closing down. People are warning. The authorities here are warning in Pinellas County in particular to make sure that you make your plan now and leave soon as this storm approaches because it will likely not stay as a category one. We are expecting it to grow as it hits that very warm water which fuels this storm. There is also always the potential of tornadic activity as well. There are plenty of places, places people can go, uh, but right now they're saying, look, get out of these zones where the storm surge could be dangerously high. Let's bring in Derek Van Dam, who is standing right next to me. We're standing, and this is the confusing thing for a lot of people, especially visitors who are not familiar with, with what happens in a hurricane. You look behind you and it looks like paradise because it is, it is absolutely Absolutely gorgeous. But in a split second, as these bands come, you can get slapped with very high winds and right. the rushing water. Yeah, especially that uh, this coastline is so vulnerable to the storm surge. And we're going to get into all the details about that. But Sarah, it is literally off to the races for Hurricane Adelia. It is now into the open waters of the warm Gulf of Mexico. And we talk about that being jet fuel because water temperatures there 
are literally two to upwards of four degrees Fahrenheit above where they should be this time of year. So that is just going to aid in this intensification process. And you can see on my graphics, there's the hurricane there, and it's got a general uh, northerly uh, trajectory and it's moving at quite a clip 14 miles per hour and that's significant because that means it's going to bring those first rain bands onto the west coast of the florida peninsula here in the coming hours here's a look at that storm surge and i want to show you that red area we are highlighting uh, basically that is the most vulnerable coastline in all of america to storm surge 8 to 12 feet in cedar key they talk about Hurricane Hermine back in 2016, which was a category one that brought six feet of storm surge. This will be a category three upon its arrival, and that will likely bring uh, catastrophic storm surge to Cedar Key and those general areas as well. Uh, I'm very concerned about Clearwater. Uh, four to seven feet is the official projection here, but what makes this coastline so vulnerable, Sarah, is the fact that it is so shallow. You could literally walk from where we're standing now to the Flat. beach directly behind us, and you'll walk into the water for several hundred yards, and you'll only get up to your waist at best. So that water literally has to go somewhere. It is going to be pushed up by this approaching storm system that is accelerating and strengthening, and that is the concern. So many people focus on the winds. Yes, that's a threat but the storm surge is the number one killer during a hurricane. I think people don't understand, anyone who's jumped in the water and gotten tumbled by a wave, this is that kind of power, but it's coming at you very, very quickly with the power of a hurricane fueling it. And yep. so that's what people need to know, even though right now we are in the calm before the storm hits. Yep. Someone who is experiencing some of those outer bands this morning uh, is Patrick Ottman. He is in Havana, Cuba, uh, which has experienced some of this uh, storm as a tropical storm. Uh, you just, you got knocked off the air earlier today because of one of those bands coming in. Tell us what happened. Tell us how powerful it was. You know, I arrived where I am uh, behind me in Old Havana, and I thought, I don't think I'm going to need to put on my raincoat uh, this morning. The skies were clear. I, you didn't feel even the slightest bit of wind. And then all of a sudden, one of the outer bands uh, of this storm came, knocked over our tripod, knocked over our uh, lights. We had to come and take a refuge uh, uh, inside uh, of this building uh, behind me. And uh, so, you know, it just can change absolutely in a minute. Uh, we all got soaked, and, and now you're seeing people struggling to get to work, uh, people having trouble uh, driving on the street. And, and again, we're on the edge of this storm. It did not make landfall in Cuba. It skirted the westernmost uh, coast of Cuba. Cuba really missed a bullet here. Florida is not going to be so lucky. So people need to make preparations. People need to take care because even on the outer edge of this storm, you can have a wind gust come in. Uh, we've seen some trees knocked over so far this morning. Uh, that can be really, really dangerous. About 8,000 people have had to evacuate so far here in Cuba. And again, we're going to miss a worst of it. Florida will not be so lucky. And uh, we're just feeling the wind pick up. We're seeing some flooding already. And it has been uh, quite a change in just the space of about an hour. If you're not prepared, it can really come up to a in the path of forces, uh, winds and rain, uh, need to make uh, those preparations because uh, when it comes, it will be too late. 
That is always really good advice, Patrick Ottman. Thank you for being out there for us. Uh, thank you to your crew as well. And for people that don't know Derek Van Dam, who is here with me tracking the storm, uh, how heavy those tripods are, those are hefty things. If, if the winds can blow that over, and it's not even a hurricane at the time, it's right. just the outer bands uh, of a tropical storm, we are talking about some real power here, especially as it hits that warm water, as you have said. We are waiting here. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it looks like somewhere that you want to be. And you do, except... This is going to change fairly quickly, and people are being told here in Pinellas County and 13 other counties to get to a safer space. Mandatory evacuations underway right now. We're going to keep you updated about all of this. We will be watching the storm here with Derek Van Dam as it comes through, and we will be here as it inches ever closer and as that storm grows. Phil. All right, Sarah, Derek, the team on the ground, uh, both in Cuba and down in Florida. We're going to get back to you guys shortly, keeping a very close eye on that. But we want to stay in Florida for another critically important story. The racist attack in Jacksonville, Florida. The sheriff's office releasing new surveillance video of the gunman who killed three black Americans Saturday at a Dollar General. Now, the suspect can be seen entering the store. You're watching it right here, armed with an AR-15 style rifle and wearing a tactical vest. Authorities say his weapons were purchased legally and he left behind a manifesto filled with hateful and racist ideology. CNN's Isabel Rosales is live for us in Jacksonville, Florida. And Isabel, at this point, what are officials learning about the shooter as they've taken more days to investigate this? Phil, good morning to you. Authorities, through video surveillance, they are tracking the shooter's every movement on the day of the shooting, including the moment he donned that tactical vest. We're also learning this Dollar General was not his stop, his first stop. While we've uncovered some new information. The Jacksonville Sheriff's Office revealing new details about the gunman, 21-year-old Ryan Palmetter. According to investigators, he worked at a Dollar Tree store last year. And authorities have now tracked his movements on the day of the shooting. Newly released surveillance videos show he first stopped at a family dollar five minutes away from the store where the shooting took place. So it looks like he, he wanted to take action at the family dollar. That's what it looks like. And he did not because I think he got impatient and got tired of waiting. He then drove to Edward Waters University, a historically black institution. There, he donned this tactical vest. The final video shows deputies inside the Jacksonville Dollar General after the shooter ended his 11-minute racist rampage. Investigators believe this is the moment he took his own life. At the university, Lieutenant Antonio Bailey hailed a hero for chasing off the gunman when he entered the parking lot of the school on Saturday. He could have gone anywhere. Uh, it's not by happenstance, it's not just, you know, on a whim that he chose to come to Florida's first historically black college or university. According to Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters, police have not reported finding any firm evidence the suspect intended to attack the university. There were students um, that stopped me and um, in that parking lot and advised that there were gunmen. The shooter drove off after being approached by Bailey. To me, the students that, you know, we preach the same saying every day, uh, you see something, say something. And the students, they saw, they said, and I was able to, to approach that vehicle. I was definitely saddened. Um, that is indeed a, a tragedy. 
And I've been texting with Ashley Carr, the daughter of one of the victims, Angela Carr. She tells me that her mother was an Uber driver who was dropping off someone at the Dollar General when that shooter fired 11 rounds into her car killing her. Now, it's unclear whether she was dropping off someone that she know she knew at the time or whether this was a passenger. And uh, Ashley says this about her mother. My mother, quote, was an incredible woman. She was fearless and thoughtful, rough, yet gentle. My family lost the light, but gained a star. And Phil, in a moment of just incredible grace, she said this to the shooter's parents, that she sends them prayers and condolences because they, too, lost somebody. They lost their son. And she says this, Although his actions were malicious, I don't blame them. Phil. That's remarkable and poignant. Isabel, thanks so much for sharing that with us. And ahead, what new CNN reporting is revealing about an ISIS smuggler's ties to the U.S.-Mexico border? Plus, a judge has set the date for the trial over Trump's alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. That date is March 4th, one day before primary voters in more than a dozen states head to the polls. And we're going to take you back out live to Clearwater, Florida, where the city and the state's Big Bend are bracing for Hurricane Idalia. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We are keeping an eye on Hurricane Idalia. We'll get back down to Florida momentarily, but we do want to focus this morning on two major developments in the criminal cases against former President Donald Trump in Georgia. Trump's former White House chief of staff taking the stand, arguing he was only acting in the capacity of his role as chief of staff. This was the first major hearing since the indictment of Trump, Meadows, and 17 others. Now, what ultimately happens could apply to all 19 defendants. Then, in the federal election subversion case against Trump, Judge Tanya Chutkin setting a March 4th trial date for next year, rejecting both the proposal from the Justice Department and from Trump's legal team for the times they requested to start. On social media, Trump claimed he's going to appeal the March 4th date of the criminal trial, where he's accused of staging a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election, and a Trump spokesperson echoing the former president, calling it, quote, an abuse of the American justice system. But over the weekend, his own attorney saying, hey, Trump doesn't need much time to prepare. What is he going to have to be prepped for? The truth? You don't have to prep much when you've done nothing wrong. So that I'm not concerned with. You know, as they bring in Ali Honig, what's interesting is that's the exact opposite of what we heard over and over and over from Trump's lawyer yesterday and Judge Tanya Chutkin's courtroom. So a little misalignment yeah. on the messaging to some degree. Yeah, the lawyers may want to coordinate the message better. But yesterday, to be clear, was a big win for DOJ and a loss for Donald Trump. DOJ had asked for this trial to start in January of 2024, four or so months from now. Donald Trump's team wanted it in April of 2026, two and a half years from now. Judge Chutkin came down right about there, March of 2024, about six or seven months from now. Now, Trump's team had argued, we've been given over 12 million pages of documents that we have to review. We need more time. But the judge bought DOJ's argument. They said, look, we've streamlined this for them. We've identified the main documents. They can word search this. They can get it done. Judge Chuck and basically said, hey, get to work. The American public needs to see this. Now, as you said, Phil, Donald Trump immediately disregard all this blather. All that matters here is he said, I will appeal. Now, He's almost certainly not going to be able to successfully appeal this right now. Why not? This would be what we call an interlocutory appeal, meaning the trial hasn't yet happened. You don't yet have a verdict. In order to do that, you need special permission from a court. Probably not going to get it to appeal a trial. It's almost impossible to appeal a trial date. But if there's a trial and a verdict of guilty, 
Donald Trump certainly will get to appeal, and you can bet that this trial date will be one of the issues. After the fact. After the fact, exactly. That's the normal course of appeals. Okay, so I want to take to the other trial down in Georgia. You had Mark Meadows testify. I think everybody was stunned to some degree. We just haven't heard from him. Putting him on the stand, was it a gamble? I was surprised, yes. I think it was a gamble. So the issue here, Mark Meadows is trying to get the Fulton County state-level case moved over into federal court. Meadows has to show that he was acting under color of his federal office as White House chief of staff. And in order to make that showing, he took the stand and he testified. I think this was an important quote. He said, there is a role for the chief of staff to make sure that those campaign goals and objectives are implemented at the federal level. He basically said, there's not a clear line between what I was doing politically and what I was doing in my official job as chief of staff. That's the nature of the job. Man, really hate on the hatch act there. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an unusual argument. Yeah. Now, the prosecution called Brad Raffensperger, who said straight up it was a campaign call. Judge is going to have to decide this one. Okay, um, so I do want to ask you about this. Yes, yes, the calendar, we do this, I feel like, every day because it's important to note that everything is stacking up in a huge, huge, politically problematic way. It's so important to know this, and, and it changes every day right. as well. Okay, so now we have the January 6th federal trial scheduled to begin in March. That's going to go certainly through April. But let's also remember... The Manhattan hush money case is also scheduled to go in March. That's going to go through April. And Fonnie Willis has asked to try her later group of defendants in Georgia at the same time. I mean, that's not going to happen. That's a new definition of March madness. You're not going to have three trials happening at once. Now, here's how I think this is likely to play out. We know that the federal judge and the state judge talk to each other. Nothing wrong with that. Happens all the time when there's conflicting trials. Judge said it yesterday. Exactly. Nothing. No scandal there. Happens all the time. What usually happens here, the state cases will get pushed. The federal case takes precedent. I think that will leave us with the January 6th trial starting March 4th. That's going to take a few months. That's going to take us to April into May. But let's remember the Mar-a-Lago trial in Florida, Jack Smith's other case. That will start in May and take us through to July. That is a five-month stretch, Phil. You don't need me to tell you what's happening politically from March to July of 2024. Tuesday, Georgia primary, winner-take-all primaries, including... Florida. That's just in March. Exactly. And Trump's got to be physically in the courtroom for these. These yeah. are criminal trials. So it's this is take the reality, the not just the PR and the optics exactly. of things. Ellie Honig, as always, thank you, Thanks, my friend. Sir. Sarah, I want to toss it back to you, keeping a very close eye on what's happening down in Florida. Yeah, we are waiting for this storm to arrive here in the state of Florida. It is right now a category one, but that is likely to change because it is going to go over that very hot water of the Gulf of Mexico. In just a bit, we will be speaking with the FEMA administrator uh, about the preparations that are underway and what they will be doing to make sure that people are able to be safe as this storm inches ever closer to the west coast of Florida. That's ahead. Well, welcome back, where we are continuing to track what is now Hurricane Idalia. It uh, changed from a tropical storm to a hurricane, a Category 1 hurricane overnight. It looks like it's going to continue to strengthen potentially to a Category 3 hurricane. We have Sarah Seidner on the ground in Clearwater Beach, Florida. And Sarah, you've got a pretty critical guest uh, that you're about to speak to. Yeah, we are going to be talking to uh, the FEMA administrator uh, as this storm inches closer and closer to Florida. We've already seen some of those outer bands hitting Cuba, but he did not take a direct hit from the hurricane. The hurricane, uh, the, the tropical storm, strengthened to a hurricane around 5 a.m. I'm standing here with Derek Van Dam, uh, who has been tracking and watching this storm as it gets closer. Uh, right now, though, it's a 
a false false beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a thing. But it is so beautiful. And a lot of people see these pictures and they think, oh, I'm going to go down to the beach. Oh, this is going to be an incredible day. And it is an incredible day until it isn't. And when it isn't, we're talking about major storm surge, which is the most dangerous, most deadly thing. We could see the waters just rise up many feet. And because we're in a place here that is very flat, there's nothing to stop the surge uh, from, from really powering through. It is extremely important that you listen to the authorities who are telling you in 14 counties to evacuate, to get to a safer space. As you are watching this storm, uh, Derek, just give us some sense of timing here so that people understand what they need to do in order to get out of this potentially really huge storm surge. Look, we're already starting to see some of the first outer rain bands uh, reach the west coast of the Florida Peninsula. It's close. Uh, It is now in the open waters of the eastern Gulf of Mexico. We talk about how that's going to prime it for strengthening and deepening. So we anticipate that. And that is what we're seeing on all the radar and satellite that we've noticed. So what will happen, what people should expect this morning as these bands approach the coastline, then you'll get the tropical storm force gusts. It's only later tonight and then certainly into the day tomorrow where we get the hurricane onset of the winds. But that's going to be closer to the big bent of Florida, the uh, uh, Appalachia coast to down to the Cedar Key region. And uh, that's the area that's most prone to uh, storm surge. And the Cedar Key region is being told to get out now because they could be completely inundated when this storm makes its way right onto land. Uh, Let's go now to our FEMA administrator who is standing by live for us. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, Can you give us a sense of how FEMA is preparing? I know uh, that FEMA has for for many years faced some criticism for not engaging as quickly as possible. Uh, We saw in the wildfires, for example, in Maui, FEMA showing up immediately and being there on the ground. What are your plans for this particular hurricane, which is at a category one now, but expected to grow quite strong as the hours go on. Good morning, Sarah. Uh, Yeah, we have been engaged uh, with Florida's Emergency Management Department for several days now. We've also been in touch with um, our officials in uh, Georgia as well as North Carolina and South Carolina as they will also feel some impacts from this. Uh, Our preparation getting ready for this has been to move our resources in. We have uh, urban search and rescue teams that are on standby to support the state with any life-saving needs that they have. We have the Army Corps of Engineers ready to support any power generation missions that they might need. Uh, We have teams that are ready to go out into the community door-to-door to to help understand what the impacts are um, after the storm passes and it's safe to do so. And so we will continue to move forces in um, to be ready to respond at Florida's request to come in after the storm passes to begin helping with any life-saving and then beginning any recovery efforts as needed. We are looking at the map right now, right next to you. We're seeing places like Port St. Lucie and Tampa, Cedar Key, uh, a lot of area covered by this hurricane potentially. Can you give us some sense of what residents uh, in these places should be doing um, in case they have uh, major damage? Should they be taking pictures? What should they be bringing with them to make sure that they are safe and that their property uh, is potentially safe in all of this? 
I think the most important thing right now for all Floridians is to make sure that they know where they're at and what their risk is going to be as it relates to this storm. Um, it is a Category 1 now. We expect it to intensify. We expect it to make landfall as pa uh, possibly a Category 3. Um, but it's also the storm surge that's so significant. And so the first thing that I just want to tell everybody in Florida is listen to your local officials. If they ask you to evacuate, please do so. And it doesn't mean you have to go hundreds of miles. It could just be 10 or 20 miles inland to get out of that main area. If you are asked to evacuate, definitely take your important documents with you so you have those. So after you go back in and it's safe to go back in and you start to assess the damage, you have all of your important documents like insurance papers and identification um, to be able to start a recovery process. I think it's really important to, to mention, um, we all remember August 29th, 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit. And that storm was a Category 3, but it was the water that was the story. It was the water, the breaking of the dams, that was the story there. Is this storm going to be the same? In other words, the storm surge, the most dangerous thing uh, for people who need to understand what that is. That is a really good point, Sarah. We get very focused on looking at the cone of, of the hurricane, and that is really representing the winds of the hurricane. But the number one killer in all of these storms is water, whether it's the storm surge that's going to happen at the coast or the excessive rainfall that might happen inland that causes urban flash flooding. The water is the thing that we are finding that is killing more people in these storms than the wind. And so please pay attention to where you're at, what your risk is, how much rainfall you might get, and listen again to your local officials because they are going to tell you the actions you need to take to keep yourself safe. Deanne Criswell, FEMA Administrator, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for giving information that is vital to people as this storm approaches the west coast of Florida. And we will be checking in with you uh, as the storm gets closer and closer. I know you are very busy. I hear all the activity behind you there. Uh, thank you, and we, and we will be in touch. Thank you, Sarah. All right. I am still here with Derek Van Dam. We are going to have a chat in just a bit about what is to come. But first, I'm going to send it back to Phil, who is nice and dry in an air-conditioned studio. <laughs> I mean, you're making me feel bad here. It looks very beautiful down there, but you guys have been laying out the warnings in detail, that conversation uh, with Deanne Criswell, the FEMA administrator, also underscoring that fact. And there's another element here that I'm fascinated by, and I think is going to become critically important as Idalia churns closer to Florida. Could be a litmus test for the state's volatile insurance industry. It's expected to make landfall as a Category 3 hurricane with at least 110-mile-an-hour winds. You were listening to Sarah just talk about that. That's slightly weaker than last year's Hurricane Ian that had sustained winds of 150 miles an hour and caused $65 billion with a B dollars in damage. CNN's Julia Chatterley joins us now. Julia, we were talking about this uh, during the break. The industry, the market, it is a disaster right now to some degree. What should people expect? I think a disaster is a great way to, um, to put it, quite frankly. In terms of this particular storm and hurricane, there's good news. Um, insurers are saying that state residents, by and large, are covered for this, and the industry itself is well capitalized to make any payouts that are required, God forbid. But the problem is the knock-on impact it has on pricing in a market that's already seen prices skyrocket. And, and quite frankly, it's eye-watering. Take Florida as an example. The average Floridian is paying $6,000 for property insurance this year. That's four times the average across other states. 
The industry itself is predicting a 40% 4-0 rise in insurance costs this year. That follows a third rise last year. And part of the reason for this, quite frankly, is insurers are leaving. 15 insurers left the state. They stopped writing policies over the last 18 months. We've got double digits numbers going into insolvency or liquidity. And actually, the message is very simple. The business model doesn't work. The way that insurers work, they need to take in more money in terms of premiums than they pay out in losses, or they stop writing policies, or they go out of business. And that's basically what you're seeing with these insurers leave. These are not the only problems. When we go and buy insurance, an insurer like Allstate, for example, goes and buys reinsurance to right. protect them. Those costs are up 40 to 70% this hurricane season alone. Then add inflation into the mix. We talk about this a lot. Just to rebuild buildings in the United States over the past three years, those costs have risen 40%. That's labor and that's raw materials. This is a perfect storm in terms of pricing. And people like Floridians in California, in Louisiana, they're all suffering the consequences. I don't even understand how a market can exist to some degree. Real quick before I let you go, how can people try and save money or protect themselves here? The most important question, bundle. See if you, going forward from now on, can get property insurance and auto insurance together. Talk about perhaps raising the amount of money that you pay um, in terms of the pre- of lowering the amount of premium, take a high deductible if you face a loss. These are some of the options. And ask for discounts, yeah. senior discounts, for example. Yeah. Listen to that. This is a fascinating story. We're going to be talking about this a lot in the months and years yeah. ahead. There's no question about that. Well capitalized makes me... For now. Yeah, it makes me nervous based on covering financial markets. Julia Chatterman, yeah. thanks so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, a federal judge says Donald Trump's election subversion trial should start a day before the biggest primary day In the Republican race, Trump's team plans to appeal. Will they be successful? And we are learning that the FBI is investigating dozens of asylum seekers who entered the U.S. from the southern border this year with the help of a smuggler that had ties to ISIS. That new report, it's coming up next. Well, Judge Tanya Chutkin setting a trial date of March 4th next year for Trump's federal election interference case. That means she's technically rejecting special counsel Jack Smith's January 2nd request, but probably more critically, also rejecting Team Trump's proposal for April 2026. That puts the start date the day before Super Tuesday, just before another trial, Trump's hush money case in New York, is set to get underway on March 25th, 2024. And there is also, oh, by the way, the Fulton County case, possibly this October, the second E. Jean Carroll defamation trial, which is on the day of the Iowa caucuses, and also the classified documents trial proposed for May of next year. Got all that? That's a lot. If you're filling out a calendar, like for your family in the morning, this is what we have to do for the week. It's a busy week, month, and year. Joining us now, political video reporter for The Washington Post, Joyce Coe, CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, and CNN political reporter, Elena Treen, in studio on studio. set. Welcome. Yes, thanks for having me. Um, you spend a lot of time talking to the Trump team mm-hmm. with the Trump campaign at Trump's properties okay. <laughs> to some degree, where we usually talk to you uh, at this hour. The calendar itself, look, I understand what the spokesperson says in the statement. Mm-hmm. I understand what his TV lawyers say and what his lawyers say in the courtroom itself. Take us behind the scenes. When the campaign's actual kind of key players look at this calendar, and look at what it's going to mean for whether Trump is on the trail. Look at what it means for their infrastructure, for their money. What concerns them most right now? There's a couple things, Phil. Um, one is, for a while, there actually was the belief within Trump's team that they could delay 
a lot of these trials, or if not all of them, until after the 2024 election. It's no secret that's their plan and that's their goal. But increasingly over the last several weeks, there's been um, acknowledgement within his camp and his lawyers about how now with his mounting legal troubles with the four indictments he's facing, it's more likely than not he's going to have a trial in the middle of primary campaign season, especially now that Judge Chutkin just ruled that it's going to be March 4th. I think there's even as much as we saw Donald Trump say, I'm going to appeal this and whatnot, and Ellie can speak to whether he can actually do that. Um, they recognize that he's probably going to have to do this. And that's very concerning for him because I think as much as they are benefiting from the short-term political boost of these indictments, we're seeing them fundraise a ton of money off of these charges, they're far more worried about the trials themselves. And they also are worried about how general election voters could react to this. And that's something that they fear a lot can come out in these trials that could impact the campaign. Of course, he's also being taken off the trail at a very crucial time in primary season. Right. Which, I mean, if you're plus 30, plus 40 points, uh, maybe it's not the, the biggest concern. But that's the point that I think that people are missing to some degree. The trial itself, Ellie, yeah. he's going to be sitting in a courtroom we are going to be hearing arguments. It is not going to be PR statements and people yelling on TV. This is in a courtroom. What does that mean? Tell, take people inside that courtroom. Yeah, it's a whole different ballgame. And I, I think yesterday was a reality hit for Donald Trump's team. It is clear we are going to have one, maybe two trials between now and the election. When you're on a criminal trial, you have to physically be there as the defendant. We remember the E. Jean Carroll trial a few months ago. That was a civil case. Trump opted to skip that. He will have to be physically in the courtroom. It's a full day. It's a long day. Trials usually start 9, 10 in the morning, go to 4, 5 in the afternoon. He will be in D.C. He will be in Florida. And so he will be physically off the campaign trail. And I think it'll be really interesting to see from a political perspective, how does that play? Because presumably he'll be getting wall-to-wall -wall coverage, not the good kind when you're a defendant in a criminal case, but presumably he's going to get a ton of media coverage, but he's not going to be out there at rallies. He's not going to be able to go door to, not door to door, but, you know, shake hands with people and be mixed in with the normal type of campaign activity. I don't know how that's going to play ultimately. And to that point, you know, if you're another campaign and you're watching this and you've been waiting uh, for any number of things to happen to the former president that haven't happened, uh, and perhaps you wanted just one opportunity not to have all the oxygen sucked out of the room, not going to happen, where's your opening here? I think you sort of see this with some candidates like Nikki Haley, who have started since the debate, she sort of started pivoting her messaging um, and not being shy about going after uh, former President Trump when it relates to these indictments and how he possibly could govern um, with these charges that he faces. You know, despite saying that she would, she was one of the six of the eight candidates on stage during that debate, saying that she would also support uh, the former president if he was to be the GOP nominee. But I think Ellie makes a good point in, in terms of, you know, this optics that we've been talking about this morning. At least in the Georgia case, the state trial, he we could see him in court on television. On TV, right. Where, you know, in the federal trial, that might not be the case. But how does that look to, like Alana said, the general population of voters, uh, the, you know, general election voters? You know, it might play differently in the primaries I've been out in Iowa talking to voters. There's no Republican voter who will tell me that they will not support uh, the former president if he's con convicted of any of these crimes, if he is in prison by the time that the 2024 election rolls around. I didn't speak to a single Iowa Republican voter who told me that, even if they're supporting someone else in the primary process. So he clearly has an iron grip over uh, the voters, at least, that we're talking to right now. But how will that play among you know, independent voters and general election voters come right. The fall. Elena, this is my, uh, I've been fixated on this idea yeah. 
of tell me post-May, tell me post-convention, uh, the, the path right now. And I'm not one of those people that's saying Donald Trump can't win. Mm-hmm. I lived through 2016. I covered his campaign in right. 2016. Right. Been there. Not, never going to say that again. You know it well. <laughs> but the idea of the people that gave Joe Biden the presidency have not gotten any happier about the former president and to some degree are the exact population that are saying they're turned off by these indictments. So what's the plan inside the campaign? For a general election strategy? It's funny. They actually have been pivoting toward that. We saw them um, release an ad just before the debates, making it a Trump versus Biden type of race in their minds and trying to portray that to the public. But listen, it's tough. Right now, a lot of what they're doing is focused on Trump's base and Republican voters. It's a it's a massive primary election strategy, but they will need to have a general election strategy. I think that they are still figuring out what that will be. I think they're going to lean more into of uh, the 2024 general items like the economy, China, the border, all the things we know that a lot of voters liked when he, you know, had these policies, maybe not his rhetoric. They're going to try to hone that. But again, if he's being, you know, there's so many of these trials that he has to go through, all of these legal troubles. It's something that his campaign, I don't think, has figured out yet how to spin to general election voters. And it is a big concern within the Trump campaign itself. Yeah, no question about it. It's a very different team and a very different infrastructure than it definitely had in 16. It had in 20, a much more professional team. It'll be interesting to see how they do that. Elena, thanks for coming in. It's thanks good to see you. Me. Ellie, Joyce, thanks, guys. Now to a CNN exclusive, the FBI is scrambling to find dozens of migrants who crossed the U.S. southern border with the help of a smuggler that ties to ISIS. U.S. officials say no specific ISIS plot has been identified, but they are still tracking a number of the migrants as possible criminal or national security threats. I want to get to CNN's Katie Bo Lillis, uh, who's reporting on this. Katie, Katie Bo, what do we know about what U.S. officials know in this moment? Yeah, Phil, so it's important to say at the outset that U.S. officials believe at this point that there is no indication of any terrorist plot or any terrorist planning against the United States. They really see these people as seeking a better life in the U.S. The Biden administration views this as more of a human smuggling case than they view it as a potential terrorism case. So what happened here, Phil, was basically a case of bad timing. This group of Uzbek nationals presented themselves seeking asylum in the United States. They were vetted according to standard U.S. procedures, and then they were released into the United States pending a court date, as is typical in this kind of incidents. What happened was that the U.S. only later developed intelligence that allowed them to understand that the human smuggling network that had facilitated the travel of these individuals to the United States had an individual in its group with some pretty troubling links to ISIS. And that obviously set off some pretty loud alarm bells across the federal government, Phil. So what has been the, or I guess, how did U.S. officials respond when they realized that this had actually transpired? Yeah, so this has really all gone down in the last few weeks. The FBI immediately scrambled to try to locate, investigate, assess the backgrounds of all of the different individuals who had come into the country through the work of this facilitation network. The U.S. also broke up the smuggling network, and Turkey, at the behest of the United States, detained the ISIS-linked smuggler that was involved in this group. And that allowed the U.S. pretty quickly to determine that this person was really more like an independent contractor. He was he was not a member of ISIS. He was somebody who just sort of had personal sympathies with the group, which gave them some confidence pretty early on that this was more of a human smuggling case than it was a potential terrorism case. So for some officials that we spoke to, this whole episode is really evidence of the system working the way it should. The U.S. received additional intelligence about a group of migrants inside the United States. They investigated and they determined that they likely did not present a counterterrorism threat. But for some counterterrorism and intelligence officials that we spoke to in the course of our reporting, this episode 
episode was a lot more alarming. For these people, the whole incident just shows how vulnerable the United States is to the possibility that terror groups like ISIS could try to essentially sneak across the southern border by hiding amid sort of the flood of or the surge of migrants seeking asylum in the United States. For these individuals, Phil, this whole episode really a test case that proves a chink in U.S. armor. Yeah, a very complex and dynamic test case at that. Katie Bolillo's great reporting. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bill. And right now, I want to take us back to Florida, where our Sarah Seidner and the team have been keeping a very close eye on what is now a hurricane that they are waiting for. We've been seeing it play out uh, off the coast of Cuba, headed in the direction uh, of where Sarah Seidner is right now in Clearwater Beach, Florida. Sarah? We are uh, on Clearwater Beach. It is an absolute beautiful day, but that is going to change. All of the uh, forecasts indicate that we are going to start seeing some of the effects of Hurricane Idalia, which is a Category 1 storm, but it is getting into the Gulf of Mexico, and it is going to intensify because those waters are warm, which helps fuel the hurricane. We now understand that at least 20 counties are in some form of evacuation mode. Some people are, it's a mandatory evacuation where they are telling you that you've got to get out and get to safety. And there are other places where it is a voluntary evacuation. It is not the entire county for a lot of places. It is just parts of the county, exactly like where I'm standing, where you are very, very close to potential dangerous storm surge. And that is going to be the story of this storm, a huge storm surge lifting up those ocean waters, pushing the waters closer and closer to the population. We are watching it, and we will give you an update as soon as we come back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We are continuing to monitor Hurricane Idalia. It is now a Category 1 hurricane. It could increase to a Category 3 hurricane as it heads towards the Gulf Coast. We'll keep you posted on that with our team. Sarah Seidner is down there in Clearwater Beach now. But we also want to focus on your health this morning. Researchers have now found CTE, a brain disease often associated with NFL players and concussions, in younger amateur athletes. That's according to a striking new study from Boston University. Now, the researchers evaluated 152 donated brains and found evidence of the disease in more than 60 of them, including in athletes who never played professionally. CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta has been covering this issue for years and has visited the very brain bank where this work is happening. Sanjay, I had multiple concussions as a high school football player, but never really thought that that was something I needed to be concerned about. How concerning is this study? Well, the first thing I want to tell you when you look at these numbers, the outset, is that all the people who actually had their brains donated, this can only be diagnosed at autopsy, so they donated their brains, um, they all had significant symptoms, Phil. So this is a pretty specific group of people. I don't want people to look at those specific numbers here and say 40% of people between the ages of 17 and 29 are going to develop this. These are people, again, who had symptoms. But I think what is concerning, to your, to your point, Phil, is just how young this was. We often think of CTE as something that happens not only after a professional career, but many years after a professional career. We know it can happen in amateur athletes, and it can happen young. And just really quick, CTE, again, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's sort of this Alzheimer's-like syndrome of symptoms that people will develop with memory loss, with confusion, impulse control, 
control issues, depression, and suicidal behavior. In fact, suicide, Phil, was the primary cause of death in this group of people that we're talking about here. But I think one of the headlines should be that most people, uh, all the people who donated their brains, they had symptoms. I don't want the, to suggest that everyone out there who's had concussions like yourself is going to develop this. It's a very important point. Sanjay, I, I'm, I'm stuck on the idea of the youngest person to have been diagnosed uh, with CT yeah. was just 17. It just seems yeah. so young. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I'll tell you, when we were working on our documentary a few years ago, Big Hits, Broken Dreams, yeah. that's exactly when this 17-year-old named Nathan Stiles, his family came and, and had his brain evaluated. And I want to show you this. I actually spent time with Ann McKee. That's Nathan. He was 17. He had this incredible game one day. He ran 165 yards in the first half alone, had a had a significant blow to the head, subsequently died. But this is us looking at his brain. And, and what you can see, I don't know if you can tell there, but those dark areas, again, in a 17-year-old's brain, that is the tau protein. Often associated with Alzheimer's disease, they found it in his brain. Again, there, there was no suggestion he had symptoms at that time, but this was an indication of just how early these brain changes can start to take place, Phil. And do we know, there's been so much groundbreaking research, do we know why some people develop CTE and why others don't? Yeah, so it's, it's still not entirely clear. Most people will not. Um, is there a genetic sort of predisposition for this? Is this a environmental thing? One thing to keep in mind, take a look at this animation of the brain. When we talk about blows to the head, one of the things that we're often talking about can be subconcussive hits where the brain is actually accelerating and then decelerating quickly. And so the brain itself moves um, within the skull. So it's not necessarily these blows to the head that are specifically causing it, as much as it is the stretching of the fibers within the brain. Um, multiple times that that happens, that seems to be something that, that sort of sets you up, even if they didn't lead to concussions. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you've been all over this story, this research uh, throughout. Thanks so much. You got it, thank you. Well, we are waiting for an update any minute now on Hurricane Idalia. It's a Category 1 storm right now, but forecasters warn it could intensify into a Category 3. And coming up, big developments in two of former President Donald Trump's criminal cases. We're going to get reaction from the highest-ranking Democrat in the House, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. Just ahead. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to CNN This Morning, and we are following breaking news right now. A brand new forecast from the National Hurricane Center as Hurricane Idalia churns towards Florida's Big Bend. You're looking at live footage from our drone over Clearwater Beach. That is where Sarah Seidner is. Uh, Derek Van Dam, our meteorologist, is also down there. Sarah, a lot of preparation, very quiet right now. But what are you seeing? What's expected on the ground there? It, that is the thing. When you look at that picture from the drone, it looks like paradise. It is beautiful right now. But there are preparations underway. There are evacuations underway. There are some mandatory and some voluntary evacuations now in 20 counties. Why is that? Because a storm is coming. We know now that it's no longer a tropical storm. It has gained in strength to a Category 1 hurricane. And we are expecting that to grow even more powerful as this hurricane hits those warm Gulf waters and intensifies to potentially a Category 3. And just to remind people, 
what kind of damage a Category 3 storm can do. It is not about the wind so much as it is about the water. A Category 3 storm, you will remember, hit in Louisiana in 2005, Hurricane Katrina. And you remember the story there with the breaking of the levees. It was all about the power of water. That is the fear right now, the storm surge. You see how these beaches are so flat that water can be pushed right up and into very populated areas. So they are telling people to get to safer ground. You don't have to go hundreds of miles. You don't have to go to another state, but you do have to get to safer ground. And that is all spelled out for people. I want to go now to our Derek Van Dam. He has been beside me all day, but now he has got another view uh, as he watches this hurricane get ever closer. Derek? Yeah, Sarah, you got to check this out. We're on clear water. And uh, uh, you were talking about the warm Gulf of Mexico waters. We're beyond uh, bathtub waters. We are in hot tub territory. The temperatures are running about two to three degrees Fahrenheit above where they should be this time of year. So that's like jet fuel for an incoming hurricane as it approaches this area. It's going to feed off of those warm waters. But as Sarah was talking about how this coastline is so susceptible, particularly uh, the west coast of the Florida Peninsula, the Gulf side, right, and into the Big Bend area. Let me show you an aerial perspective to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. So uh, side by side, hopefully you've got this up. You can see the storm surge projections, 8 to 12 feet near Cedar Key. That is incredible. But look at the vast miles of flat beaches that go as far as the eye can see. There's Clearwater Beach just to the north. And uh, we're in Sand Key, particularly just to the south of this. And we're going to get on the granular detail. The National Hurricane Center has this storm surge prediction map. And what you're looking at is Tampa Bay and those shading of orange. Well, that's anywhere from four to seven feet, perhaps up to nine feet of storm surge inundation that's above normally dry ground. Near Clearwater, we zoom in a little bit closer where I'm located, and you can see the yellows and the orange right on that barrier island where we are currently set up with our camera crew. But let's go a little further north into Cedar Key, and what you're going to see there is a lot of red and a lot of orange. That is because that topography of the Big Bend, it's like a catcher's mitt, literally taking all of that piled up water from the very shallow and very warm Gulf of Mexico that you see behind me, and that is going to pile up all that water. Remember, Hermine back in 2016 was only a category one. That brought six feet of storm surge to Cedar Key. We're projecting eight to 12 feet that could inundate that area. Sarah. Again, I cannot stress this enough. It looks so beautiful where you are, Derek Van Dam, which is just a few hundred yards behind me. Uh, it is so tempting to come out and to play in that bathtub-like, or as you said, hot tub-like water. But authorities are telling people that if you do that, if you stay too long, you will not have time to get to safety. You will not have time to get out of the way of danger. And so right now, you can come back to this. It will be here. But right now, it is a time for those who are in evacuation zones to do so, to get to a safer place. And in the meantime, do not forget about, by the way, your pets. There are plenty of places that have shelters for pets and people um, so that you can take your entire family with you. Derek Van Dam, thank you so much for a view there from the very warm ocean. We are going to toss it now back to Phil. Actually, no. No, we're not. We're not going to do that. What we are going to do is pay attention to our executive producer, Carolyn Kremen, 
who tells me that uh, St. Petersburg Police Chief Anthony Holloway is is here with us. Uh, sir, uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. And good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you for being up bright and early with us as we are finally seeing just how beautiful it is uh, here on the west coast of Florida. But there is danger on the way. What are you expecting there in St. Petersburg and what are you telling the citizens uh, of St. Petersburg to be on the lookout for and to do? And like I said, good morning again. And you're absolutely correct. For the next eight hours, we're asking people that are in the flood area of uh, zone A to use these eight hours right now to gather up your belongings, get your family, your pet, and move out of those areas. We have here in St. Pete, we have four shelters that are open, and we just want people to move move away from danger because we know around 4 p.m., that's when we're going to see our first rain bands to come in. And then somewhere between 9 o'clock and 9, 9 o'clock tonight and 9 o'clock in the morning, what is going to get pretty bad, and we know that the wind's going to be somewhere between 40 to 60 miles an hour, and like you were talking about earlier, those, those surges are going to be what we're really worried about, about flooding in our city. Those storm surges, and I know that uh, Tampa has certainly experienced uh, hurricanes before. Give people a sense, because having gone through these many times as a Floridian, having gone through these as a reporter, I know you've gone through these uh, as, as a chief. Can you give me some sense of what happens with emergency services? Because when this storm comes in and it's packing 60, 70, 80 mile an hour winds, you can't function the same way that people may expect you to, which is why you tell people to evacuate, correct? Yes, that's what we make people aware of that, you know, when a storm gets really bad, that we have to take the first responders, we have to move in uh, out of the bad weather so we can make sure that we can respond to those calls. So those people that decide that they do not want to evacuate, they got to remember to shelter in place. You're going to be on your own until the weather dies down, and then we'll be able to come back out and rescue you. So we're just telling people, if you're going to stay at home, uh, shelter in place, but we really prefer that you move out of the area so we don't have to get tied up uh, trying to make rescue that we can get back up and going as soon as possible. Yeah, I think the worst thing that you can do is put other people in danger and your officers uh, and firefighters uh, and, and rescue teams will be put in danger if someone is in dire need of help because of this storm surge. And it is the water. We can keep reminding people about this because it, it can't be said enough that it is the water. It is the storm surge that is the most dangerous. It is the most deadly in every storm uh, that we see. We do pay a lot of attention to the winds because they're very visual, but it is the water that is extremely dangerous that is very hard to get away from if you don't evacuate in time. Sir, thank you so much, Police Chief Anthony Holloway of St. Petersburg. Uh, all the best of luck to you and your team there as you await this storm. You not only have to protect people, you also live there, so you have to protect your own family uh, and your workforce. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. All right. Now, Carolyn, can I toss back to Phil? You know, Siner, I was ready. I, I was ready, but that was a much, more, know, person, much more important person to talk to You're a uh, than me, given what's going on down there. Uh, very important message there uh, from the police chief. Very important reporting going on. We're going to stay in touch with you and the team throughout the course uh, of the next hour, as we have been throughout the course of the morning. 
So we keep an eye on this hurricane as it approaches Florida's Gulf Coast. But also coming up, House Republicans, they're gearing up to launch a possible impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Well, how are Democrats going to react to that? We're going to ask the highest ranking Democrat in the House, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York. He's going to join us live for an exclusive interview. That's next. Well, Donald Trump stares down 91 felony charges across four different criminal cases. Some House Republicans are turning their attention, have been turning their attention toward President Joe Biden. Sources tell CNN that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other top Republicans have privately started to strategize about how to move forward with an impeachment inquiry into Biden this fall. It's something McCarthy has been hinting at publicly for several months. The whole determination here is how the Bidens handle this. If they provide us the documents, there wouldn't be a need for impeachment inquiry. But if they withhold the documents and fight like they have now to not provide to the American public what they deserve to know, we will move forward with impeachment inquiry when we come back into session. Well, joining us now, New York Congressman and House Democratic Leader, Hakeem Jeffries. Sir, thanks so much for taking the time. Morning. I want to start there because it feels like it's not no longer an if, but a when. Uh, potentially as soon as, as the end of next month is what our colleague Melanie Zanona, who I know you know quite well, has been reporting. Your response to Republicans inching towards launching an impeachment inquiry into the president. Well, throughout this year, the American people have been forced to deal with a do-nothing extreme Republican Congress that has done nothing uh, to make a difference in the economy, nothing to make a difference with respect to job creation, nothing as it relates to health care affordability, nothing as it relates to inflation, nothing as it relates to public safety. They have nothing to show for their majority uh, throughout the year. And so as a natural consequence of that, they just continue to take orders from Donald Trump, their puppet master in chief, who has directed them uh, to persecute and to go after uh, Joe Biden which may take the form of an illegitimate impeachment inquiry. Do you feel, you know, one of the things that our colleagues have been reporting, uh, Melanie and others, has been they're not going to have a vote to launch the impeachment inquiry because they don't have 218 votes, mainly because frontline Republicans, the majority makers, many of which, many of whom come from your state of New York, uh, aren't necessarily there yet. I've talked to some of them behind the scenes. They say exactly that. Do you feel like politically it would be advantageous for you if they decide to go down this path? Well, I'll leave the political assessments to others. I think that from a policy perspective, it's exactly the wrong thing to do. As House Democrats, we're going to continue to focus on delivering for everyday Americans, making a difference in the lives of everyday Americans. There's so many challenges that we need to continue to confront. President Biden is leading in an extraordinary way, trying to build an economy from the middle out and the bottom up, as opposed to the top down, which had been the case under Republican presidents. Uh, and we're going to continue to support him in that effort. There also are issues related to gun safety that we should be tackling. Uh, this is a uniquely American problem, and it's tragic. We shouldn't have children uh, who have to familiarize themselves uh, with active shooter drills as early as kindergarten uh, all across the country. We should be tackling gun safety uh, and some common sense measures that we support. But instead, what we see are Republicans with this do-nothing extreme majority wasting the time uh, and the treasure of the American people. And that's unfortunate. I do want to ask you about both the economy and on the, the Jacksonville shooting and gun safety uh, in a second. But I do have one more. We had the uh, key Republican, House Republicans yesterday 
uh, wrote to Attorney General Merrick Garland demanding information about the investigation into Hunter Biden, saying, quote, since the early days of its investigation concerning Hunter Biden, DOJ has deviated from its standard investigative procedure and afforded Hunter Biden special privileges not afforded to other Americans. I, I understand your point about policy and what you guys have been focusing on as a caucus, but you also have a role, your ranking members have a role in kind of this back and forth when they go down this path, defending the president, defending uh, the president's family to some degree. Are you confident when you look at what the Justice Department has done, when you look at the investigations into Hunter Biden that the Republicans have pursued up to this point, that there hasn't been any wrongdoing, everything's been above board? Yes, I'm extremely uh, confident. The American people know fundamentally that Joe Biden is a good and decent man. Uh, who's dedicated his life to public service uh, and will continue to serve the people honorably uh, and admirably. On the other hand, you've got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos and others who are running the show uh, amongst the House Republican majority. It's an extreme group of people uh, who aren't really trying to improve the lives of the American people. As Democrats, we're going to continue to put people over politics uh, and to focus on lowering costs, better paying jobs, safer communities, growing the economy for the middle class and delivering, that will be a clear contrast that will be available to us to present to the American people in November of 2024. You know, there's a possibility that contrast gets laid bare with the deadline that's coming up at the end of next month. It's the fiscal deadline. Spending bills have to be done or a, a continuing resolution has to be signed. I, I've lived in the appropriations world for many years. And if I go down that rabbit hole, my team's probably not going to be happy with me. But to top line it to some degree, um, there is no conference right now. There's no, neither chamber has started to reconcile all 12 appropriations bills. Nobody thinks that's going to happen. Have you spoken to Speaker McCarthy about a continuing resolution? Do you think that the government's going to shut down? I have not spoken to Speaker McCarthy about a continuing resolution recently. Um, I do expect that at some point in time, within the next week or so, we'll begin to intensify those conversations. I have, of course, spoken to the Biden administration, spoke yesterday to leader Chuck Schumer, we all agree that the right thing to do is to make sure that we can continue to provide funding for the government so that the federal government can provide for the health, the safety, and the economic well-being of the American people. That is our fundamental responsibility. Uh, but again, dealing with an extreme group of people, this extreme MAGA Republican majority that right now uh, temporarily holds the gavels in the House of Representatives, uh, there's an inability to function to do the basics of what is required as members of Congress and to focus on solving problems for the American people. So the extreme MAGA Republicans are marching us toward a reckless government shutdown because what they want to try to do is to jam their right-wing ideology down the throats of the American people. That's exactly the wrong thing that should occur. So do you think, though, that, that McCarthy controls the floor? Do you think a shutdown is inevitable if that's the path they pursue? It remains to be seen. We're going to work as hard as we can to stop a reckless shutdown from taking place. But ultimately, uh, that, is, that is the area that the extreme MAGA Republicans are going to have to make a decision about whether they want to govern or whether they want to continue continue to peddle uh, their right-wing ideology. Now, no, a side element of this, uh, the administration set up an emergency spending proposal that included both disaster funding, we're talking about hurricanes right now as well, but also included additional Ukraine funding. If you pull up, I think, the latest polling on where the American public is on Ukraine polling, I think it was 45% say yes and more, 55% say no. It's a major issue inside the Republican conference. By the end of September, will the additional Ukraine funding be approved? Well, I think that uh, it's going to be important for us to continue to be there uh, for the Ukrainian people as they fight 
valiantly uh, against Russia. This is a conflict not just between Ukraine and Russia. It's a conflict between democracy and autocracy, between freedom and tyranny, uh, between truth and propaganda. And we should continue to stand on the side of the free world. At the same time, we have to provide uh, for the needs of the American people. And so as House Democrats, we're going to continue to work with President Biden uh, to implement the historic legislative agenda that was passed in the previous Congress under the leadership of Speaker Pelosi uh, in partnership with Democrats in the Senate uh, and the Biden administration to implement the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which will ensure clean water in every single community, fix our crumbling bridges, roads, tunnels, airports, water, and sewer systems, create good-paying jobs. We need to implement the Chips and Science Act, which is bringing domestic manufacturing jobs back home to the United States of America, incredibly right. important. And the Inflation Reduction Act to combat the climate crisis, lower drug costs, uh, give Medicare the ability to negotiate reducing prices for the seniors of America. These are the things that we will continue to focus on. And that's exactly what I want to ask you about, because in terms of the, the two years prior to now, from a legislative achievement standpoint, in terms of policy priorities, you mentioned chips, you mentioned infrastructure, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm not sure scale-wise you've seen something particularly with the very slim majorities that President Biden had. And yet, when you take a look at the polling, and I know you're very familiar with this, you've been in the districts talking in the last several weeks. You know, a CNN poll from earlier this month shows that despite the positive macroeconomic indicators, despite those legislative victories, 63% of Americans disapprove of the way Biden has handled the economy. That disconnect, I know, has flummoxed and frustrated White House officials from when I covered them for the last two plus years. Why do you think that is? How do you rectify that in your mind? Well, President Biden, the administration, Democrats in the House and Senate, we've been busy governing. Uh, and that's important because we've delivered historic results uh, for the American people on issue after issue after issue, including being there for our veterans who've been exposed to toxic substances and burn pits and Agent Orange or being there for the American people in terms of gun safety legislation for the first time in 30 years. We've been governing. Uh, we've been busy getting things done. Uh, over the next 12 months or so, we'll have an opportunity to both implement those accomplishments and at the same time communicate them to the American people. Not to say to the American people, reward us, uh, but we can list those accomplishments, uh, elevate them to say to the American people, trust us, uh, that we've made progress as it relates to the economy and kitchen table pocketbook issues, uh, and we will continue to build upon that progress to do more to make life better for everyday Americans. Very critical announcement from the administration today in terms of uh, the 10 drugs that they'll be able to start negotiating prices on, uh, according to the White House just moments ago. Uh, I do want to ask you, you've been out in the districts. Uh, you'd be the next speaker, if Democrat, presumably, if, if your caucus abides. Uh, if Democrats take control of the House, the majority for Republicans is very slim. If you flip your New York seats, you have a path to the majority if you hold on. When you look around New York right now, do you believe you will flip those seats, and how many do you think you can flip in 2024? Well, we're going to work very hard in order to deliver the majority here in New York and all across the country so we can continue uh, to get work done, uh, do a job for the American people that is designed to deliver for them more money in their pockets, more freedom, uh, certainly reproductive freedom, uh, freedom to vote, uh, as well as more time with their families. These are basic things that unite, we believe, Democrats, independents, and Republicans. That's our message as we move forward, people over politics, delivering, making life better, building an economy. Do you have the recruits, though, Americans. To, to do that? Yeah, I, I'm confident. Uh, Even with some of the primaries that yes, are breaking out right well, now? Primaries are a good thing, and it's part of American democracy. And I am confident that whoever emerges in these primaries in New York and across the country will be strongly positioned 
to defeat these extreme MAGA Republican uh, individuals who are currently in the House of Representatives who act like moderates, uh, but who really have extreme voting records, vote with George Santos and Marjorie Taylor Greene almost every step of the way. Even when President Biden seemed to say Mike Lawler was perhaps one of those moderate Republicans? Well, I think we're going to have to make the case uh, individually to in every particular <laughs> district. President Biden, as I mentioned earlier, is a good and decent man uh, and will continue to be. Uh, but, you know, we are going to draw a clear contrast with the voting records of each and every one of the individuals who currently hold seats uh, that we should win back in New York and California and Arizona all across the land. A lot of policy, a lot of politics. Uh, no shortage of things on your plate this August. Uh, House Democratic Leader uh, Hakeem Jeffries, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. And I want to toss now to Derek Van Dam, keeping a very close eye on what's happening in Clearwater Beach as we continue to watch and wait uh, for the path of the hurricane headed that way. Derek? Yeah. Phil, you know, um, we are standing on uh, Sand Key, which is just south of Clearwater Beach, just over my shoulder here. And I want to give you a little bit of a perspective of what this hurricane is encountering right now. I'm stepping into the warm Gulf of Mexico waters and, you know, we're, we are beyond bathtub. We are at hot tub levels. These water temperatures are running around two to three degrees Fahrenheit above where they should be this time of year. And that is going to have significant implications. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is set to give an update on Hurricane Idalia at the top of the hour. Right now, more than 5 million people are under storm surge warnings across southern and eastern Florida. Now, the red zone in this graphic, it's the Big Bend area. That's, that's the area where the surge could reach 12 feet. That, of course, could be life-threatening. And I, I want to put this all into context. Take a look at the wall behind me. The southern tip of Florida near the Everglades National Park could see a storm surge of three feet. This level is three feet from our studio floor. Now, the Tampa Bay area further up the west coast, the state could see water levels as high as seven feet. And even further north in Citrus County, officials are warning the storm surge could reach nine feet high. And like we said earlier, the highest storm surge is expected to happen in the Big Bend area, in Taylor, in Dixie, Levy counties. That is two feet taller than this wall behind me. And for perspective, this is a 12-foot ladder. I'm 5 foot 11. The wall behind me, this ladder is 12 feet. The water could tower over the average person, could reach to the top of a bedroom or a bathroom. People in at-risk areas have been told to evacuate. That's why. Take it seriously. That is a lot of water. The velocity, also not accounted for just in terms of gallons or amount, a huge component. Sarah? That is such a good illustration of what happens when these storm surges come in. And you look at that. What are you, six feet tall? Like, that is 5'11"? Is that what I heard? It shows you just how high that water can get. And it's coming at you really fast. So there is no time for you to get away, which is why there are now... 20 counties that are in some state of evacuation orders. They're either uh, mandatory orders or there are voluntary orders. And what that means for a lot of people in different counties is you don't have to go, as we're hearing from officials, hundreds of miles away. You don't have to go to another state. Sometimes it's just a few miles away. 
away from the coast, away from where this storm surge is going to happen. It's in some capacity. It will be smaller in some places and larger in others. You don't want to be caught in it. You need to be thinking about that now. We understand uh, that in St. Pete, we're expecting to see some of those outer bands uh, coming around 4 p.m. today. And by the morning, Wednesday morning, we are going to see the real strength of this hurricane hitting uh, the west coast of Florida. Where exactly? Well, I have someone that can sort of talk to you about that, our Derek Van Dam, meteorologist and reporter extraordinaire, who is uh, right there on the beach. He is watching this from the sky, and he is watching this from the ground at beach level. Let us know what's going on, Derek. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Sarah, check this out. I have a cameraman uh, point towards the warm Gulf of Mexico waters. And, you know, I could walk literally for... Uh, several hundred feet and I would only have water up to my knees here. This is a very shallow, shallow basin and that water is so, this coastline is so susceptible to storm surge, not only because the hurricane is going to be feeding off of those above average water temperatures, but because of the nature of this coastline. And I've got a drone shot to help put that into perspective. Uh, you saw Phil Mattingly's uh, great representation of what 12 feet of storm surge. Well, let me show you why this coastal area is so susceptible to storm surge, take you to the air and uh, show you a little bit about why this area is just so prone to a storm surge event. And it is because of the fact that the coastline here just goes on literally for miles and it is so shallow all the way out into the into the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Now, eight to 12 feet near Cedar Key. Remember, Hurricane Hermine, that was back in 2016. That was a category one and that brought six feet of storm surge to Cedar Key. Now we're projecting a major hurricane that's a category three or higher and that could bring significant impacts to that area. So what you're looking at now is Tampa Bay. And Tampa Bay here, we have the official forecast of around four to seven feet. The Air Force Base there just south of the city. Uh, we've got the uh, coastal areas, the, uh, the coastal waterways, this area near Clearwater. Uh, this is a very prone region as well. These uh, intercoastal waterways have the potential to see that four to seven feet of water as well. But notice as we move a little further north into the Cedar Key region, you're seeing a lot more oranges, a lot more reds. And that is indicating our eight to 12 foot storm surge that is potential into Cedar Key, something no one wants to see. But that is the reality that we are facing here. And Sarah, you know, you talked about the force as you were talking to me about the force of storm surge. No one really talks about that. 1,700 pounds. That's what a cubic yard of water weighs. So can you imagine 8 to 12 feet of water rushing in onto the shoreline with that amount of force, that amount of pressure? No one could withstand that. And that is why there are mandatory evacuations that line this coastline. Sarah. We are seeing these gorgeous pictures, Derek. Thank you for giving uh, those to us from the ground and now from the sky. When we look at this beach and we look at it from above, it is pristine and it's beautiful. Will this be completely covered in water as this storm surge gets closer if the hurricane wobbles closer to clear water? Look, we, our official forecast calls for four to seven feet of inundation. That's above normally dry lands. Now, there's a couple of other complicating factors here that we haven't had the chance to discuss yet, but there is a supermoon that could coincide with the arrival of uh, Idalia. This is just terrible timing, but a full mm. moon, we know how that has a greater 
tug, a greater force on the tides. Now, it is minimal when you're talking about the shallow waters of the Gulf of Mexico, but it is still something to consider, especially if the timing of Adalia comes onshore right when the full moon is at its greatest, the supermoon coinciding on Wednesday. It is all a possibility. We just have to watch low tide versus high tide. Clear water, four to seven feet, but that big bend, the catcher's mitt of Florida, literally all the water pushing up into that area, that is what we're concerned about uh, as it gathers strength into the eastern sections of the Gulf of Mexico. And that is why authorities are telling people to evacuate. If you get that call, do the right thing, take all of the things that you wanna save like pictures, and also your pets. Don't forget your pets, their family too. Derek Van Dam, thank you so much for giving us that really gorgeous look uh, of the beach there. Uh, we know your family is watching, so we want to tell them that you will be out of harm's way. We will not leave you out there as a storm starts hitting this area. We will be watching it together from a, 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 a slightly safer space. Appreciate you. All right, I wanna go now to the mayor of Clearwater, Brian Unkst. And we appreciate you, Derek. Uh, Brian Unst is joining us now um, as we wait for this storm as it's coming closer. We expect to see it sometime this afternoon, at least some of the outer bands. Uh, what are you telling people in the community that they need to be doing right now? Well, just like you said and Derek said, take this seriously. If you're on uh, level A evacuation, the beach or any low-lying areas, mobile home parks, please get out now. Don't wait till the last minute when traffic will get congested. Get out now, take your pets, take the things that you need. Uh, if you're here and you're not in a low-lying area, just hunker down, make sure you have your hurricane kit, your water, your batteries, your radio, the things that you need to just weather this storm. The good news is it's a fast moving storm. It's not a very wide storm, but as Derek said, four to seven feet of surge along the beach and along the entire Pinellas County coastline much of it will be underwater for a half a day or a day. It should recede rather rapidly, but still it's going to be a dangerous storm and do not be, don't, don't try to be a hero and ride it out. If they tell you to get out of there, please get out of there and do it now. Can you give us some sense, sir? Uh, there are always people um, who are hardheaded, who uh, decide that they don't want to leave their homes, that they won't leave their homes. It happens in every single storm. And you can understand why, because sometimes, you know, you just say, listen, I'm just going to be here for the long haul. I'm going to take care of what I can. What can you tell us about emergency management and what will be in place in case someone is unable to make it out as soon as now, is able to leave now? Well, we have teams standing by. We have people that need help. We have 11 buses taking them to approved shelters right now. And they can call the number of Pinellas County, which is 727-464-4333 if they need transportation. And again, do it now if you have medical needs or you need transportation or assistance. We have people standing by, as does the county, to help you get out of there. Now, I can tell you a quick story. I had a friend that stayed on Sanibel last year. And he said it took him all he could oh. get up to his garage through six feet of water. And he was barely, he's lucky to be alive. He, he sat there and watched his two cars wash away in five, six feet of water. And he was lucky mm. to get upstairs. He said, I will never, ever do that again. He's lucky he's alive. We hear those stories so often. We also see the result of people staying and ending up perishing because they did not take the warnings seriously. And the thing that gets people really, sir, is 
Clearwater is gorgeous. You know that. <laughs> we know that. Uh, you see it right now and you think, why would I leave this? It is absolutely beautiful right now. But if you have been through these hurricanes, you know how quickly that can change. What should people be bringing with them? For example, you mentioned medical issues. Um, so prescriptions. What should people be preparing for right this second to bring with them as they leave to higher or safer ground? Well, medical, uh, medical items that you say you need, prescription drugs, uh, anything that they need uh, for their daily use and, and survival, but really just the, the minimum of stuff that you need and just, and just get it in your car and get going, get on a bus, call the number if you need assistance and we'll take you somewhere. And here's the other important thing. You don't have to evacuate hundreds of miles. We're talking tens of miles. Just get to higher ground, get to a friend's house, get to a hotel, get to a shelter, it's on higher ground. You don't have to drive out of the state. Just leave the immediate area of danger, which will be Clearwater Beach, will be all of our beaches up and down Pinellas County. Mayor, you told a really important story. We know that Fort Myers is still recovering uh, and Sanibel Island as well from Hurricane Ian, which was devastating. This storm is going to be a Category 3. We all remember what happened uh, in Louisiana back in 2005. That was a Category 3 storm, so people need to remember it really is the water that is the danger here, that storm surge, so incredibly powerful, you cannot fight it. Sir, thank you so much for taking just a few minutes with us. I know you are a busy person trying to make sure that your residents are safe at this moment in time. I do want to quickly ask you one last question, and that is about schools. Uh, there are several school districts that have closed. Can you give us some sense of what's happening in Clearwater so that people understand how long they may be closed and what they need to be thinking about as far as their children? All schools are closed today and tomorrow. Uh, they hope to be able to reopen on Thursday. All city government and county governments are closed today and tomorrow, uh, other than, the, of course, the emergency operations centers. Everything is basically closed starting now or at least by noon today. Wonderful. Thank you so much, sir. I will let you get back to your busy day. Please stay safe, and I hope that you and Thank your you. family um, make it through this and your property make it through this uh, without any kind of damage. Appreciate you. All right, I'm going to toss it now back Thank to you. Phil in the studio. All right, thanks, Sarah. Very important messages and context in that interview there. We're going to come back to you uh, in a little bit. But I do want to note some things that have changed just in the amount of time that we've been on air. What we know going forward, what we know at this moment with Hurricane Idalia, Governor Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, is scheduled to hold a press conference at 9 a.m., the top of the hour. We also know Idalia has strengthened just in the time We've been on air shortly before we started the show. It was uh, given the uh, title of the Category 1 hurricane, expected to reach uh, intensify to Category 3. Right now, we know it has strengthened to 80 mile per hour winds, according to hurricane hunters, and at least 22 counties are under mandatory or voluntary evacuation orders. So we're going to have a lot more on that coming up. But we also know the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, just told me Republicans are taking orders from their, quote, puppet master-in-chief as GOP leaders consider a push to impeach President Biden. We'll discuss with our panel coming up next. Welcome back. President Trump's former President Trump's 2024 calendar filling up with not only campaign stops and campaign events and primaries, also court dates. Meanwhile, CNN has learned that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other top Republicans have privately started to strategize about how to move forward with an impeachment inquiry into Trump's chief political rival, the current president, President Biden. 
Now, the top Democrat in the House, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, says Democrats, they're not worried. They have nothing to show for their majority uh, throughout the year. And so as a natural consequence of that, they just continue to take orders from Donald Trump, their puppet master in chief, who has directed them uh, to persecute and to go after uh, Joe Biden, which may take the form of an illegitimate impeachment inquiry. Let's bring back in and bring in some new folks. Joining us, criminal defense attorney Caroline Polisi, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, and CNN political reporter Elena Treen. And Elena, I want to start with you because I think there's, when you look at what's happening on Capitol Hill, when you look at the kind of balancing act that the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has, and you're very familiar with it, uh, the fact they may go down this path, and our, our great colleague Melanie Zanona has been reporting, it seems kind of inevitable at this point. Politically, what does that mean for a very slim majority for House Republicans? Well, it's tough. I think that right now, McCarthy knows that he doesn't have the votes, the 218 votes needed to formally launch this. And Melanie pointed out in her story, and it's great reporting, that they may not need that. They may not need to vote on it in order to move forward with an impeachment inquiry. And I very much believe they will. I think that this is something that I've been covering these House investigations very closely for months now. It's what the chairman have been building toward. And I think everyone, particularly those in the more far-right section of the party and in the House, have been expecting. And I think McCarthy knows that he needs to move forward with this. Um, and it's interesting, though, just speaking about you know, Leader Jeffrey's uh, interview with you, I was catching up with him, Ellie and I, in the green room before he went on, and he was saying that you know, even though there's a lot of moderate Republicans who say that they do not want this to move forward, that they do not think impeachment is warranted, um, a lot, or go against what McCarthy and some of the more um, far-right members say, they always, almost always end up voting Right. with them and with the leader and with Speaker McCarthy. And so I think that was interesting to hear him say, and it's something that he's going to be watching for because really the moderates in this very slim majority are going to have a huge role in this if they end up moving forward with an impeachment inquiry. And they are the majority makers. They are exactly. the frontliners. A lot of them are in Hakeem Jeffries mm -hmm. state, uh, as we were talking about. So that's the Capitol Hill aspect. To some degree, that's the protection aspect uh, uh, The what President Trump has been asking, former President Trump has been asking House Republicans to do. The actual cases themselves, it was striking the timing of things, trying to figure out when the federal case uh, is actually going to start. We have a date now. You saw the arguments from the former president's legal team about time, just the scale of what they have to get their arms around. Does the date make sense? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I'm a criminal defense attorney, so I do tend to align myself more with that side of things. That being said, you know, 2026 was a bit of a reach. That's what they were arguing for. Um, you know, as again, as a defense attorney, you, you can't just really take the government's word for it. There are 12 million documents here to look through. The government noted, you know, there are duplicative documents in that dump that he's, you know, has many of them in his possession already. However, you know, you can't just go on that. You are going to want to look through those documents to make sure there's nothing in there that's a surprise. There are sophisticated ways to, to, to sift through those documents, sure. word search ability. Um, that being said, you know, March 4th, it's, it's, it's coming up. A lot of federal trials would give, you know, would give more time on that. So I do think it's going to be an issue Likely, it's, you know, it's not going to be a winner on appeal, but it's, it's definitely going to be, you know, up for the debate. Yeah, I agree. Judges have very wide discretion when it comes to setting trial dates. And I agree this will be an issue Donald Trump will appeal eventually. But it's cutting it really close here to, to make Donald Trump in a case with 12 million, doc, 12 million pages of documents go to trial in seven months. And some of the uh, rationales that DOJ offered up that the judge 
agreed with, I, I think don't cut it. For example, one of the things DOJ argued and the judge agreed with is, well, he's sort of known that this was a possibility for a year or so, yeah. going back to the January 6th trials. That's not the way it works in our system. You are not on notice as a criminal defendant until an indictment drops. That's the purpose of an indictment. You can't just say, well, you kind of should have known there was something floating out there in the ether. That doesn't cut it. I also agree with Caroline. You know, one of the big rationales has been, well, we, the prosecutors, we gave you this handy guide to most important documents. That's nice. That's a sweet courtesy. But guess what? It's up to the defense lawyer to decide what matters to the defense. So I think they're cutting it pretty close to the line here with respect to Donald Trump's constitutional right to fully prepare. That's just, it's such an interesting point. There's so many different dynamics here. The Congress, the political, the legal. Um, I'm glad you guys have uh, are here to keep it all in line for me. Appreciate it, Caroline, Elena, Ellie. Thank you, guys. Well, Hurricane Idalia is now a Category 1 storm with a maximum sustained winds around 80 miles per hour, but it's expected to strengthen even more and could become a dangerous Category 3 hurricane as it approaches Florida's Gulf Coast. Landfall there is expected tomorrow morning. Joining us now with this morning's number is CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton. Harry, what's the number? All right, Phil, what's this morning's number? Well, the number for today is 40. Why is that? Because it's the 24-hour forecast track error for tropical cyclones in this decade, 40 miles on average. And we have seen tremendous improvement in how accurate these forecasts have become within 24 hours. It was 102 miles for the 24-hour forecast track error back in the 1990s. So we've slashed it by about a third. And in fact, at this particular point, the average forecast track error track error at 96 hours this decade, 129 hours, is actually slightly better than it was for 24 hours back in the 1970s. So we have seen tremendous accuracy jumps in terms of predicting the track of hurricanes, and that's part of the reason why we were able to give out these warnings for Adalia so early on for this particular storm. Harry, it is me out here in Clearwater. I am listening to your every word, even before I've had coffee. Thank you for always bringing the great numbers to us. I do want to ask you about this. Have we humans, or scientists, as I should say, gotten better at forecasting a storm's intensity as well? Yeah, so, you know, we talked about how much better we've gotten at the track, but how about the intensity? So this is the average intensity forecast error at 24 hours. We really haven't seen that much improvement over the last few decades. Back in the 2000s, it was 12 miles per hour. Last decade, 10 miles per hour. Now it's nine miles per hour. So we haven't really seen that jump, at least within the 24-hour time span. But where we have seen it is at the 72-hour time span. Look at this. Back in the 2000s, it was 21 miles per hour. 16 miles per hour last decade. Now, look at this. We're at 12 miles per hour. So one of the things that was so difficult to forecast, we are getting better at, further out we are, and that's part of the reason why we knew that Adalia would become a major storm much earlier than we might have in past decades. It's a remarkable achievement of science, and the fact that we're able to do so well with this storm, at least so far, is pointing to that remarkable achievement. Sarah? Yeah, that's totally fascinating. Harry Anton, thank, thank you very much. Sarah? For our uh, Yes. Sarah, I, I just want to say, like, it was remarkable you getting down there, uh, especially not telling me you were going there. Uh, I was a little offended when I showed up and you weren't here, and then quite impressed that you were down there. It was a gift. Um, you've got a lot of work that you've been doing that you're going to be doing going forward. Uh, we know you're going to keep us posted, and you're going to be back here tomorrow from down there. 
That is correct. And we are watching, of course, Hurricane Idalia. It is now a Category 1, but it is going to intensify, according to every single scientist who has been watching this storm as it goes over the Gulf. We are now looking at uh, pictures there from our drone showing you clear water, showing you how beautiful it is right now. But that water you're seeing in the ocean could be surging right over all of that beautiful sand we are keeping an eye on it. We will let you know the timing of all this. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, CNN This Morning, and you're looking at the, the storm track right now of the hurricane. Back to you, Phil. All right, Sarah Seiner with us. We'll be back with us tomorrow from down there. Stay safe, Sarah, and great work throughout the course of the morning. We, of course, will be keeping a very close eye on that storm, on that hurricane as it moves towards the Gulf Coast on CNN throughout the course of the day. But also this morning, before we wrap up CNN this morning, Billie Jean King was a trailblazing tennis star who fought for equal rights her entire career, especially equal pay. But last night, the U.S. Open honored the legend, her efforts, and 50 years of equal prize money for women and men at the tournament. Women's tennis is the leader in women's sports. Why we go for it, yes! Thank you. Thank you, Billie Jean. Thank you, Billie. It's amazing what you've done for equal pay and also for society, Billie. And I'm really, really proud of you. Thank you, Billie Jean. Her fight for equal pay. Last night, former First Lady Michelle Obama paid tribute to King at the U.S. Open. Let us remember that all of this is far bigger than a champion's paycheck. This is about how women are seen and valued in this world. Well, 50 years ago, the U.S. Open became the first sporting event to offer equal prize money for women and men. It wasn't until 2007, just 16 years ago, that all the other Grand Slam events followed suit. While we celebrate today, our work is far from done. I leave you with one of my all-time favorite quotes from Coretta Scott King. Struggle is a never-ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. Enjoy the tournament. And let's keep going for it. And mi casa is su casa. A trailblazer and also a hell of a tennis player, Billie Jean King, here in New York last night. Sarah Seidner will continue our coverage of Hurricane Idalia in the next hour. We're standing by for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to speak in just moments. We'll be back covering all of this tomorrow morning as well. Stay tuned to CNN. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.